I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken. This is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And I feel like it's been so long. It has been. It's been probably like two months since we recorded. We recorded the Gary Gilmore one, the one that just went up, Mm -hmm. in I I think like on June 6th or something. And then now it's August 12th. So it's almost like we took the summer off without intending to take the summer off. Well, you know. Because last year we kind of took the summer off. We, we did, kind of. The book takes priority. And I and just, it's coming out October 31st, right? Yes, it is. Thanks for the plug. You're welcome. I'm finally going to get our newsletter. Yay! E- email newsletter going. If they want to become Patreon donors, they will get it. And you can become the a donor newsletter. for as little as $2 a month. That's right. And, and you, you get, get what things. you pay for, people. <laughs> Well, hey, you know what, though? We don't have any ads, so you have ad-free podcasts, right. as, if, as if we're doing the do ad-free get, for that purpose. You do get a magnet designed by you, because you're an artist, right? Not, not, not you, designed by me, Rebecca. <laughs> right, not you, the listener. You get other stuff, <laughs> depending on your level. And we're going to have our all-time highest donor, John Whitson of Ohio, Woo, John. is going to be a special guest. Later this year, when we can and do an Ohio, oh, um, well, it, they don't want to know how the sausages are made. But anyway, I'm sure I have things to update, but I can't think of the that. only update I have is kind of it was too long ago, but I was yeah. going to talk about how they had this on uh, Malaga Island, which that was episode shit. 30 something. Yeah. 33 maybe. Main yeah, secret shame. Look yeah. it up. I'm sorry. I'm it's horrible. easy to find. They had a uh, vigil. No, it was like a ceremony <laughs> for, to commemorate the people from that work. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I don't know. To commemorate the people who were taken unceremoniously, removed by the state, um, and stuck in a home for the feeble-minded. So if you want to know more about the story, go to that episode. Right. Which I that's, the, that's the episode we redid because we had bad sound quality. Yes, we did. So I we mean, worse than it. normal sound quality. Well, I think we're getting better. In fact, not to get back to the donation thing, but those donations go to... Basically, right now, our hosting services. And did we thank Rhonda? Yes, we did. Thank you, Rhonda. It may have been the part of the podcast that was that and Molly Smith from Virginia. Well, we should thank people at the beginning. We should. So then if something goes goes to shit. But in any case, in case people are wondering, the money they donate right now pays for our hosting services at Blueberry. It pays for, we have to have a website. It pays for the website, which I do myself because we don't have money for a website and it's paid for what equipment we do have and that type of thing our next goal would be to instead of using free software would be to get better software yes i think our sound quality has improved yes because we've learned how to use (laughs) and but i do want to say one thing my fucking voice is my fucking voice me too i'm sorry everybody but i don't apologize for your voice (laughs) <laughs> you're apologizing. I'm not apologizing. I'm saying. Okay. You're right. I shouldn't apologize. No, don't. But yes, our voices are what they are. We're not professional. No, we're not radio personality. But you know what? That's like it with a lot of podcasts. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are some that are put out by professional, you know, people who are from radio background and stuff, but a lot of them are people like people us. People like us, and that's the great thing. Yeah. You know, it's. It's either great it's, or not. I was once told by somebody I worked with that. 
I'd be much more pleasant to be around if it weren't for my personality and my voice. <laughs> well, that's that's nice to know. Two things that can't like, change. What, what's left? Like now that I weigh sixty pounds more than I did then, it, that's probably added. Uh, Why well, you looking like that? You think it's more well, like eighty pounds? No, I, I was looking like that because, because they didn't mention your weight. They no, they didn't because I was thinner. Then. Oh. Let's but, recap. The two things that made me unpleasant to be around are my personality and voice. So I would think that my physical appearance was acceptable at that time. In any case, should we... Yes, should we I dallied too long. Before we start, I want to note I got much of this information from a book, In the Evil Day, by Richard Adams Carey. Ooh, In the Evil Day. Yeah. I also got some detail from my good friend Lorna Calhoun, mm. who covered the North Country for the New Hampshire Union Leader at the time this happened. And you won't read her name in Carey's book, but she did a great job. Thanks, and I had Lorna. asked her once a long time ago if she would be a guest, but she has a public sector job. She doesn't want to be a she, she doesn't mind me talking about her or quoting her. Oh, but that's nice. She and you'll also remember her from episode the Appalachian thirty. Trail. Lorna was not in the Appalachian Trail episode. Yes, 30, we talked about her. Did we? And in any case, episode thirty, the Lego Kenny Bruce McKay. Oh yes, she was in that, but she was in the Appalachian Trail because she did that. What's her name from the that got uh, that got killed up? All right, yeah. Louise. Um, yeah. And you have to listen to the episode. There aren't a lot of other sources out there for this. It happened in 1997, and the few that are have errors that are obvious even to me. And where there are things that conflict with Carrie's book, I mean, and they all do, I'm going to defer to his book because he did the research, and the book was written fairly recently, and he talked to a lot of people, did his homework. Even the Time Magazine article that was written maybe a month after it was written on the fly and was had a lot of errors. But Yeah. And, and so now I bet you're wondering, ooh, what's this about? A couple months ago, when Jared Ramos killed five people at the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis, Maryland, I'm sure many journalists, me included, were only surprised that it doesn't happen more often. Yes. Newspapers not only are exposed to the darker side of life, but they anger many people on that side of life by publicly exposing what they're doing. And I think people who are narcissistic and have other issues see them as an enemy of the people. Even. Oh. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Right. Like governors yeah. and presidents, yeah. 21 years ago in New Hampshire, there was a shooting, similar in a way, but also different from the Capitol Gazette, and you'll see why. It affected a newspaper, though the newspaper wasn't the target. That staff at the Colebrook News and Sentinel, like the one at the Capitol Gazette in June, managed to put their heads down and get the paper out. I don't work for the News and Sentinel, which is way up in northern New Hampshire, in the tip of the state. I worked for the New Hampshire Union Leader at the time, which is a daily in the biggest paper in the state, hours south of where this happened. But still, the connections in New Hampshire and journalism run deep, and the people killed in Colebrook 21 years ago were people we felt like we knew. Just like in Annapolis. It's funny, when you look at the five people who died, they could be people who worked at any newspaper. I mean, there's just a type of person who works for newspaper, and they're all really different. But the Colbert shooting also spurred a saying, not really a joke, but one of those dark humor things you find in a lot of newsrooms where we often wonder, like I said, why it doesn't happen more often. Every once in a while, when I worked at the Union Leader, someone, particularly someone with a dark sense of humor, would say, it's Draga and he's got a gun. And those who'd laugh would do it nervously, and many people would steal a glance at the plate glass windows lining the hallway. Mm. Today's story is about Carl Draga and the terror he wrought when he killed four people in the space of 45 minutes in a New Hampshire town on August 19, 1997. 
And I didn't realize when I went to do this that it was going to be around that same time of year. That day didn't happen in a vacuum, though. You'll read that this happened because the cops pulled him over because he had rust on his truck or because he had tar paper on his barn, and nothing could be further from the truth, both in big ways and small ways. Is tar paper against the law? You'll find out. Okay. You'll find out. (laughs) New Hampshire is a state small in both size and population. It has 1.3 million people, not much different from what it had in 1997. It's one of three northern New England states. It's cramped like a wedge between Vermont to the west and Maine to the east. People who live in other places may think that those three states are interchangeable, but people who live in the three states know they're not. Yeah. Yeah. New Hampshire has a lot of oddities, and I lived there for 25 years, so I could say this. She was one of them. (laughs) Thanks. And a region, northern New England... That prides itself on its independence, New Hampshire takes it to the nth degree with no sales tax, no income tax, and the words live free or die on its license plates. It may have an overblown sense of its own importance because it has the first in the nation presidential primary, and for a few cold months every four years, it feels like the whole wide world is watching New Hampshire. Yeah. New Hampshire is fat at the bottom and narrows as it goes north. The northern part of New Hampshire, known as the North Country, is remote in more ways than one. It's bordered on the south by the presidential range of mountains. They're New England's highest mountains. And you have to squeeze through them on Route 3 to get there. After Interstate 93 takes left into Vermont. It's bordered on the west by the Connecticut River and on the right by some of Maine's most remote territory and Maine's western mountains. To the north, past the little town of Pittsburgh and the Connecticut lakes that make up the Connecticut River headwaters, is Canada. New Hampshire has a history of criminal visitors, too. Maybe it's because people fleeing the law figure if they go north to these remote states that no one really thinks much about, they can disappear or get to Canada quickly. My view is that they're going north on I-95, and they get to the part in eastern Massachusetts where it meets 93. It seems like getting on 93 and going north to New Hampshire is the quickest way to get to obscurity or to Canada. In 1913, granted that's before I-95 existed, but millionaire Harry K. Thaw, who'd shot his girlfriend's husband, architect Samford White, in New York City in 1906, Mm -hmm. escaped to Canada from a New York mental hospital, and Canada deported him to Colebrook, New Hampshire, (laughs) where he spent some time hanging out at the Monadnock Hotel as New York wrangled over his legal status, and he became kind of a celebrity who was invited out to dinner and taken on hunting trips and all sorts of fun stuff. Oh, hunting trips. Sounds a little risky. Yeah, and that was in Colebrook. which we're going to be talking about, Rodney Alcala, most commonly known as the dating game murderer, fled some of his first known crimes in California in the late 1960s, including a brutal assault on an eight-year-old girl. He changed his name to John Berger, and in the summers, while he was a student at NYU's School of the Arts from 1968 through 1971, he was an art and drama counselor at summer camp in George's Mills, New Hampshire. It was at that camp where he was arrested and brought back to California in August 1971, after which he is known to have killed eight women and assaulted Ugh. countless more. I won't go into everything that happened after, but look at it this way. It was 1978, seven years after he was arrested for crimes in California, when he appeared on The Dating Game under his real Go. name. And maybe we'll do him someday. Do. Bernard Getz. Uh-huh. Best known as the subway vigilante, shot and seriously wounded four young men on a New York subway in December 1984, and he spent nine days on the run, ultimately surrendering to police in, you guessed it, New Hampshire, in Concord, the state capital. I'm the person they're seeking in New York, he told them. It took him a bit to convince the Concord cop 
that he was an actual fugitive, but he was finally taken into custody and Mirandized. A Concord cop interviewed him twice, audiotaping him, and that's when he famously, at least for people of our generation, said, quote, My intention was to murder them, to hurt them, to make them suffer as much as possible of the guys he mm-hmm. shot. Later, he said to the Concord cop, If I had more bullets, I would have shot them all again and again. My oh. problem was I ran out of bullets. None of those guys died at the time, by the way. Getz was acquitted in 1987, by the way, for those of you who don't know the story. His lawyers said that those statements that he made to the Concord police and other things he said were the product of emotion and an overactive imagination. Mm -hmm. He'd been mugged several years before. He was white. The four guys on the subway were black. And you know how it goes. Yeah. Also in Colebrook, the place where Harry Thought ended up in 1913, Christopher Wilder, sometimes known as the Beauty Queen Killer, Mm. A serial killer out of Australia ended a six-week U.S. cross-country rape and murder spree oh in Colebrook. God. On April 13, 1984, Wilder stopped at Vic's Getty Station on the corner of Main and Bridge Streets in Colebrook, right next to the News and Sentinel office, by the way. Mm-hmm. State troopers Leo Jellison and Wayne Fortier recognized the car as one that there was a bulletin out for. He was out of his car, and as he saw the troopers approaching, he went back to get his gun. Jellison, who you'll hear more about later, grabbed him, they struggled, and Wilder got off two shots, one of which went through him and seriously wounded Jellison, the second of which killed Wilder. Another responding to that call was Fish and Game Conservation Officer Eric Stoll. Both he and Jellison will play parts in what happened in Colebrook 13 years later. And a fun fact, by the way, I read in Carrie's book that before the state police had radios, when they were first formed in the 1930s, they'd get phone numbers from gas stations and give them to their main office. If they were needed, the main office would call the gas station, and the gas station would put a special flag out, and the trooper would oh, call the office. And Vicks Getty and Colebrook on the corner of Bridge and Main Streets was one of those stations. Interesting. Carl Draga was born in Connecticut, January 19, 1935, the youngest of seven children. He sometimes fudged the date of his birth to make it 1930, and some believe it was because his wife, Rita, was 15 years older, and he wanted to close the age gap a little, but who knows why. A lot of the things you may read on the internet say he was born in Bow, New Hampshire. He wasn't. That's just people not doing their homework. He moved to Manchester, New Hampshire in 1965 when he was 30. Manchester is New Hampshire's biggest city. It's down in the southern part of the state. He met Rita, a waitress at his favorite restaurant, and they were married. And in 1969, moved to Bow which is in Bidron Concord, the state capital, and coincidentally not far from that summer camp where Ronnie Alcala <laughs> would have been working at the time. That he That's just a coincidence, nothing to do with this. Many who knew him describe him as a perfectionist and a quick-tempered loner. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He was a construction worker, laborer, didn't drink or smoke, and worked hard. He'd travel to jobs and often sleep in a camper on the back of his pickup. Hmm. Officials at the Vermont Yankee nuclear plant said a couple days after the 1997 rampage that Draga had twice worked at their plant where he passed a background check and psychological screening. Rita was a North Country girl from Groveton, New Hampshire, and in 1970, Carl and Rita bought some land on the banks of the Connecticut River in Columbia, just south of Colebrook. And it's up in the skinny little part of New Hampshire, south of Canada, and just right across the river from Vermont. And Colebrook has about 2,500 people. It's the biggest town in the area. Wow. I'm not going to do the big city newspaper thing of saying small and remote every time I mention a town in this story. They all are. That's just Go a with it. Okay, yeah. Carl built a two-bedroom cabin as a getaway and an eventual retirement home for himself and Rita. He also built a three-story barn. 
the barn was massive compared to the cabin. And no, he didn't have any animals for the barn. He just built a big barn. He just like... Yeah, and it didn't take long for Carl's troubles in northern New Hampshire to start. And my guess is this is the first place he really laid down roots. He was a traveling worker. I don't know if he had issues in Bow, at their place in Bow. But I have a feeling no matter where he lived, he may have ended up having problems. In 1971, when he was building his barn, it was found he had no permit for it. Mm-mm-mm. Ken Parkhurst, the chairman of the Columbia Board of Selectmen... Said he could still fill one out, even though he'd already built the barn. And Traga wasn't happy about that, but he filled one out. But he left the part where it asked what kind of siding it would have blank. At the time, the barn wasn't finished, and it had tar paper siding. Yeah. Parkhurst, the selectman chairman, said Carl had to put something on the form. They weren't allowing unfinished buildings anymore. Parkhurst later told the union leader, as quoted by Kerry in his book, that Draga's attitude was no hick town was going to tell him what to do with his oh, property. Jesus. He refused to fill it in, and in June 1971, the three-member board of selectmen denied the permit because it wasn't completed. They told him he could reapply or be fined $10 a day, and Draga ignored them. So after a year, the town sued him for the fine. We had no choice, Parkhurst said. Either you enforce the laws you've got, or you don't need laws in the first place. That's right. Draga didn't appear in court on that suit. His wife was sick with cervical cancer, oh. and she died the same day as the hearing. Well, I and guess not, that's a good excuse. I know, that was in 1972. Kerry talks in his book about how a lot of people feel like, although I think Draga would have been a problem no matter what, but he kind of conflated her death with the issues, the, the issues with the town and kind Even of Even though he them. created them. His brother Frank eventually paid the fine, and Draga eventually sided the barn, according to the book, a handsome board and batten job. Because he was a perfect he was a perfectionist in his carpentry and very good at it apparently. But he also held a grudge, that's for sure. In nineteen eighty eight, sixteen years after the hearing and his wife's death, in a letter to the editor of the News and Sentinel, the local paper, and I'm not sure what the letter was about, but apparently it was an airing of his grievances. But he pointed out there were buildings all over town with tar paper siding, and that he was being treated differently because he was a flatlander mm-hmm. and his wife was part Native American. Hmm. It's Possible there were buildings of tar paper. Some were grandfathered before the ordinance was put into effect and that type of thing. In April 1990, Draga went to a Columbia Selectman's meeting and demanded a copy of the minutes from the February meeting. So this is a 1990, 18 years after that. Kemp so Park- he's, been fe- he's been like stewing about this. Yeah, and there may have been some other little things yeah. going on. I'm not, but Parkhurst was still the chairman, and another person on the board was Vicki Bunnell, a lawyer who had an office in nearby Colebrook. It was Draga's belief that the zoning ordinance was being applied unfairly, and he felt there'd be proof in the minutes. And I don't know if he was still chewing over the barn thing, or if there... I think, you know, he did a lot of things on his property. I guess that he probably had multiple yeah. infractions. Vicky asked him to wait. They were in the middle of paying the town's bills, and the copier wasn't warmed up, and they'd have to find the minutes and the files. And anyone who's um, been to or covered for a newspaper like I have, a small-town selectman's meeting, you basically go into their office, and you sit there at a desk, and it's kind of a freewheeling affair where a lot of, they do pay the town's bills, literally write checks sometimes, like they were doing this and, and other things. But in any case, Vicky asked Draga if they could mail the minutes to him, but he wanted them right then. Eventually, Parker said he could come in and get them the next day, and Draga left. Vicky, though, 
ended up finding the minutes, copying them, and putting them in an envelope with Draga's name on them so they'd be ready for him the next day. She wanted to be sure he got them. Two hours later, he was back, and he sat down right there and read the minutes, and then he asked for minutes from a 1988 meeting, which was two years before. And Parkhurst, the chairman, said it had been a long day, and he could come back when town hall was open, and the town clerk, who was Parker's wife, Isabel, by the way, mm-hmm. could get them for him. And Vicky even said, well, I can find them. And Parker said, no, Vicky, it's not your job. Isabel can get them in the morning. And so Drago went over to the file cabinet and started rifling through uh. it. Vicky jumped up, closed the door. I guess the other two selectmen men were just sitting there slack-jawed, who knows. But she closed the drawer and asked Drago to leave. He refused, and he opened another drawer, and she did the same thing. And she called the cops because he wouldn't leave the meeting and yeah, he was being disruptive. Being a, a Colebrook cop and two state troopers came. Columbia is too small to have its own police department, mm-hmm. and it looks like Colebrook helped out with Columbia's stuff. Drago refused to leave for the cops, too. So he was arrested for criminal trespass and taken six miles up Route 3 to the Colebrook PD. Bail was $300, and he was released on his own recognizance. On the bail form above his signature, he wrote in all caps, I do not understand. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. State trooper Leslie Lord, and it's Leslie a guy, less people call him, offered to give Drago a ride back to his car in Columbia, six miles away, but Drago refused and walked the six miles home. Ooh. The charges were later dropped. Vicky told Parkhurst that it wasn't worth it. We got him off out of the office. Let's forget it and move on. In 1991, Drago called the Fish and Game Department. Officer Eric Stoll, who also lived in Columbia, responded, and he was one of the guys at that Christopher Wilder gas station arrest in 1984. Wow. But he, you'll see a lot of that in this story, a a lot of small town. He was also a neighbor of Vicky and a friend of hers. And as I said, you'll see in this story just how small this area is. Everyone knows each other, or almost everyone. It's also easy for a guy like Draga to kind of operate on a different plane from everyone else. Hmm. But he had a gated driveway, and everyone in the story had to park up at the top of the ridge and walk down a path to his cabin. And in this case with Stoll, the fish and game officer, it was a narrow path through high snow. And mm. when he got to the cabin, music was blaring and he knocked and there wasn't an answer. But the door was open, so he kind of stuck his head in and he's like, Carl, are you there? And he said the room was sparse. I guess it was two levels built into the ridge and the bottom level was actually the living area and Stoll was up at the top level. There was a plywood floor, very little furniture, but there was a shotgun and a rifle in there. Their necessities. Yeah, and suddenly Drago was behind him, all pissed off that Stoll had opened the door and stuck his head in, and so it started off on a bad note. But in any case, he wanted Stoll to help measure out into the river. Some of his land had been washed away by a flood, and he rebuilt it with riprap, which is piled stone, basically, 80 feet into the river, and the state was saying it was out too far, and the river current around it was eroding the farmland of Bernard Ruthier, who lived across the river Mm. in Vermont. He had Stoll measure out to some rock out somewhere, and he wanted Stoll to sign an affidavit that Draga himself had written with a little map on it, saying that that was where the the jetty could be or something. And Stoll wasn't going to do that, and they got into a big argument. Draga just was going on and on, and he was so pissed and argued so hard that Stoll wrote that he that the rock is was 80 feet out. But that was all. No conclusions about what that meant or anything. All he was conceding was, yes, there's a rock 80 feet from the bank. And I guess the river was kind of iced over, and they had... Dre had cut a hole in the ice, and he was very obsessed. 
But as Stoll walked through the narrow path of snow back up to his cruiser, it occurred to him what a sitting duck he was. Draga had made him that nervous. Yeah, I believe it. And Draga went back and forth with the State Department of Environmental Services and others on the riprap, finally filing suit in 1994, a few years after this, in Colebrook District Court, naming Stoll, who he said had a personal vendetta against him. When the suit came to trial, Draga, wait for it, represented himself. Of course he did. He didn't seem to get the... He had no evidence Stoll did anything wrong. <laughs> Judge Paul Desjardins dismissed the suit... Later that day, Draga had another hearing because Dan Wamet, a local contractor who built the Rip Rap, was suing for the balance of what he was owed because Draga wouldn't pay him because he said Wamet and his crew had done a bad job. Jeez. And apparently when Wamet went to Draga's to ask for the money before the suit was filed, Draga said, you'll get your money, you'll get your money, and he had a pitchfork, and he was like punching the pitchfork in the ground near Wamet's feet, like Wamet had to keep moving his feet oh, to weird. keep from getting stabbed with it. That was in court that same day, because I think the Colebrook District Court, it's the kind of thing that meets like once a month or oh, something, okay. so all the... Draga, of course, acted as his own attorney in yes, that one, too, and he lost as well, because, again, he didn't understand that you have to have evidence. He was just kind of going on complaining. In May 1993, Louis Jolin, a tax assessor, was doing a town assessment, and this involved going to people's property, measuring buildings, etc. The town sent out notices letting everybody know that this would be happening. And Draga had recently put an addition on his barn, and Jolin parked at the top of the ridge, came down the path. Draga was working outdoors, and he greeted Draga, but Draga ignored him. And Jolin started measuring. Since the back of the barn was built into the ridge, Jolin had to go inside to measure. When he came out, Draga started screaming at him for going in the barn mm. and then other things. Louis went back up to the Jeep. Draga followed. He stood behind the Jeep and wouldn't let Jolin leave. I guess it was in a spot, you know, where he had to back out to leave. Jolin said they could call Vicky and straighten it out. She was the she was still selectman and she was also, I think, the tax collector or town treasurer. Draga said, You tell Vicky Bunnell to get her fucking ass down here. Ooh. So, of course, this, and I won't say this over and over, but this was the days before cell phones. Maybe some people had mobile phones or car phones. Most people didn't. No. So, Louis, who was in his 60s, and he sprinted to a mobile home park down the street and asked to use someone's phone, because these were in the days you did that. Vicky, on her way to Draga's, after getting the call, stopped by fellow selectman Norm Cloutier's business to bring him to. I love all the names. I know. But Norm had a... Uh, customer, I, I can't remember what kind of business it was, and so he was going to follow in a few minutes. And Vicky had told Louie on the phone that Draga was gruff and occasionally nasty, but his bark was worse than his bite. Uh, remember that one, folks. By the time Louie got back to his Jeep from calling, Draga had put railroad ties behind the tires so he couldn't Jesus get out of there. Christ. But he wasn't around. Vicky arrived, and as she bent to remove one of the railroad ties, a shot rang out, a whistling above Louie and Vicky. Draga came up the driveway with a rifle and told her to get her fucking hands off of his property. Louie was in the Jeep trying to start it as Vicky tried to reason with Draga, who was screaming at her, and according to Louie in his police report, using abusive language and apparently bringing up all his grievances with the town. Oh, God. Of course. Norm Cloutier showed up around this time, and he said Vicky was calm, and she said to Norm and Louie, well, we'll just have to find a different way to approach this, but she later told a friend that she'd been terrified. I bet she at was. The time. But Draga aimed his 30 6 shotgun at Vicky the whole time he was yelling at her. He went back to his house, though, shortly after Cloutier got there, which tells you something. Mm-hmm. 
After half an hour, three state troopers showed up. And it's not, you know, this is a big area. They were probably taking care of something else somewhere else. It's not that they discounted the situation or anything. One of them, Scott Stepanian, knew Dragas slightly because he was investigating a firearms theft from Dragas' cabin. And apparently Stepanian's an easygoing guy and talked to people well. So Drago was working on a stone wall he was building, and they walked down the driveway calling out to him. And the book describes how they walked in case he shot at one of them. That, but I Did they zigzag? No, it's serpentine. <laughs> it's serpentine. serpentine. <laughs> no, but I couldn't tell if they were walking. Like, I, the book didn't describe it well enough for me to depict it here. So instead, I'm just going to tell you how I can't. But in any case, so that if he shot at one of them, one of the other ones could. So I, I assume they were spread out. Yeah. I don't know. But he ignored them. Then he got up, went in the barn, and came out with a thirty out 6 He didn't respond when they asked him to put it down. And I was thinking right now, I don't think he should have been shot, but I was thinking right now, this could have ended a lot differently. A lot of a lot of police-involved shootings in Maine, that's about the time they get shot. Right. But I would say part of it, and you'll see that a lot in this story, is that it's a small area. People know each other. And I think even when they don't, there's more a feeling, I can talk to this mm-hmm. person well, I mean, We're it's a credit to the, part, I guess, to right. the police that they 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 didn't shoot. Well, one of the right. cops later said, you know, he learned in the police academy that once a bullet leaves your gun, you can't take it back, That's so you right. have to be careful about using it. But Stepanian kept calmly talking to Draga, even though Draga had the gun, and I don't think he was aiming at them. I think he did this a lot where he held it kind of on his hip with the barrel up, and he eventually put the gun down. And he said he didn't know why he once got arrested for trespassing at Town Hall, a public building, while Louis, Vicky, and Norm were trespassing on his land, but the police were protecting them. And this is one thing I think that's true of people with these narcissistic personalities is I don't think he was being, I mean, he was being a jerk, but I don't think he was saying that to be a jerk. I think he really couldn't understand. Yeah. His narcissistic little world is so narrow that he doesn't understand what the difference is because he's not getting what he wants. No, that's true. And in the book, The Gift of Fear, (laughs) written by Gavin DeBecker in 1997. Your favorite book. My favorite book. Well, I urge everyone to read it because 21 years later, people still aren't. But he kind of points out, like, stalkers and people, they don't see the world the way other people do. And the thing they want is... So important to them that they believe it must be equally important to everyone else. That's a simplification. But anyway, Drago was taken to the Colbrook PD and charged with reckless conduct and remanded to the county jail. A friend, yes, he had this one friend, Jerry Upton, (laughs) who lived across the river in Vermont, came to pay Drago's bail. And while Drago was waiting, he was heard to yell, live free or die, bullshit, live free or die, ha, and criticizing the tax collectors and yelling about all his grievances. He later denied he pointed the gun at anyone. And my feeling is if you're going to do stuff like that and become this hero to, like, all these people and shit, which he does, and I'll explain that later, you have to own it. You should say, damn right I I pointed a gun at him. Damn right I shot over their heads, you know, instead of denying it. But anyway, this time he got a lawyer. Maybe the one time he did it, but it didn't go to trial. All parties agreed that the charge would be dismissed with 12 months of good behavior, that he'd have access to town records during that time, and could attend selectmen's meetings if he notified a town official in advance and was accompanied by a law officer. He met the terms, and after a year, the case was dismissed. 
In August 1995, a year after the dismissal, he filed a suit in Coes County <laughs> Superior Court against Vicki Louie in the town of Columbia. He represented himself, and according to um, the book, appearing in a mechanic's jumpsuit and aviator glasses. Mm. The author of the book writes that the hearing got off to a bad start when Drager refused to stand for the entrance of Judge Harry Perkins and then scuffled with Sharon John Morton, who he'd later sue, who tried to help him stand. And then he delivered a 74-page statement to the court, reviewing all his grievances going back to 1972. The judge had to warn him several times about swearing. To shut the fuck up. And the biggest issue wasn't that all the 74 pages, he didn't have any evidence to support any of his claims. The hearing was dismissed. He mailed the summation of his complaints, the 74 pages, to the (laughs) New Hampshire Attorney General... Which caused another issue because then he got all pissed that nobody was responding. Because they were probably like, what the fuck? In March 1995, he wrote to New Hampshire Governor Steve Merrill complaining about Vicki being appointed as a Colebrook District Court judge and sent him the 74-page grievance document. (laughs) In May 1995, he got a letter from the court saying his complaint against Judge DeJardin was dismissed. He wrote a note on the letter, I think it was for his own files, complaining that he still didn't have a... transcript i guess he was looking for a transcript from his hearing his original hearing way back oh, and the fact that he didn't get the transcript and he had paid 365 dollars made him nuts throughout that fall and summer he had frenzied correspondence back and forth with various courts throughout the state the state's congressional delegation complaining in all caps about not getting the transcript, his various grievances, and the fact he wasn't getting replies from the ones he didn't get replies from. The ones who did reply often referred him back to the people he'd already complained to, the AG, the local court, the selectmen, and this continued throughout 1996 and 1997. Snail mail days, so... But also, in his, not in his defense, but kind of, when there's a difficult person you're dealing with, a lot of times people will just try to pass the buck because they don't want to deal with them. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I can see if the fact that he paid that much money, I can see if a, he a normal person getting upset. Right, if he didn't get the transcript. Part of the issue was he traveled a lot for his work and wasn't there for months and yeah. months. A lot of accounts you'll read say he lived in Bow and Columbia was his vacation home, but I don't think he had the home in Bow anymore. But he would spend months away working as a contractor on jobs. And it's possible... It came. And, and also, they take a long time to get. So, how right. long? How long you know, they who can... knows? It could have been in the work. I, it's not really clear yeah. what happened with that transcript. I think I can say it wasn't that it was deliberately being No, I don't think so either. In 1995, Ed Jeffrey, the president of the New Hampshire Central Railroad, was checking out the planks on people's driveways that crossed the tracks. And technically, the people whose property it was owned the planks. But if they got messed up, they could mess up the trains. So he'd check them, and if they were worn out or needed replacing, the railroad would do it for a very discounted rate for homeowners. Or they could have someone do it themselves, and since Drago was a carpenter, he could probably just do it himself. But in any case, when he got to Drago's house, he could tell the planks needed replacing. He tried to contact Drago, but phone calls and letters weren't responded to. So he went out to the property to talk to him. And Drago came out with a rifle and told him he was trespassing. I think anyone can just assume when you go to his property. That's you're gonna how you're going to get greeted. But Ed Jeffrey explained who he was and what he was doing there. And even though he told the author of the book later that the look in Draga's eyes gave him chills, Draga said the planks were fine. 
And Jeffrey kind of just went along with it because he could see he wasn't going to get anywhere. They chatted a little about the railroad business, and Jeffrey left. He ran into Drago once or twice after that and made a point of being cordial to him the way you handle a pet rattlesnake, is how he described it. On April 4th, 1996, the Colebrook District Court Clerk phoned the police department from upstairs. The police department was in the basement. (laughs) Town Hall, the district court, and the police department were all in one building. She said Draga had come in looking for paperwork she didn't have, possibly that transcript, and he became so abusive that she was still shaking um, after he had left. She'd also heard from the courthouse in Lancaster, 36 miles south, down Route 3, which is the county seat, that he'd been down there looking for the home addresses and tax assessment records for Judges Desjardin and Perkins, Vicki, her attorneys, Fish and Game Officer Eric Stoll, and three state troopers, Hmm. including Scott Phillips, who you'll hear more about later. The clerk said there was also an outstanding warrant for Draga's arrest, stemming from the civil suit involving the contractor Dan Wamet. Draga hadn't shown up in court in June 1995 on a hearing related to the fact that he had never paid the money he was ordered to pay in the previous court hearing, mm, I think the one he wants yeah. the transcript from. And Carrie, the author, points out that Traeger was often out of state and rarely seen, so it's not like they were actively chasing him for this warrant. It happens with a lot of people. There's a warrant out for their arrest, and eventually the person is arrested. Yeah, um, and well, Especially it, it, if it's something like failure it's something, to pay a fine. Yeah, it's, and, not, it's not like they're, they're a violent... Yet, I guess. Right. So state trooper Scott Phillips, one of the ones Draga had already looked up his address for. Rookie Jean Bijan, they went out looking for Draga. They saw his old orange pickup truck in a store parking lot on Main Street in Colebrook. And Draga was walking out to the car with a bag of groceries. And Phillips said, and I assume this is according to Bijan later, Hi there, are you aware there's a warrant out for you? (laughs) And Draga kept walking, and Philip said, Carl, did you hear me? It's our responsibility to place you under arrest. Well, thank you for your cooperation. And Draga ignored him. So each of the troopers grabbed an arm, and, of course, the groceries fell to the ground. Two more troopers had shown up at this point, and Draga demanded to see the warrant, but, of course, an arrest warrant doesn't work like that. So Draga argued with them that there was no warrant, this was a crock of shit, that 10 months later, after he didn't appear, they're trying to arrest him. And the real reason they're arresting him is because he's been asking for the court transcript and they don't want to give it to him. And it took all four officers to get his arm behind his back to cuff him. And Trooper Stepanian picked up his groceries, repacked them in the bag, and put them in the truck for him. When the rookie, Bijan, tried to put the seatbelt around Draga Draga, like straightened out his body so he couldn't put the seatbelt uh-huh. on it. And at the station, Phillips... They should have tickled him. At the station, Trooper Scott Phillips, the older veteran, although he was only 31 at this point, said to Bijan that charging Draga with resisting arrest would just add insult to injury. And since he wasn't violent, they probably shouldn't charge him. Bijan, who had just started as state troopers, and yeah. Um, but Draga wouldn't answer any questions when Bijan was filling out the report, including what his name was. And they finally had to put him on the phone with a judge, who he did talk to. He paid his $250 bail and left. Later, Bijan said Draga didn't like him, but he hated Scott Phillips. It was personal. It was like he blamed Scott for everything. The civil suit, the whole deal. There was something cold in the way Carl looked at Scott. A different quality of animosity. You had a, have a feeling this guy was capable of anything. Hmm. So this was in April 1996. And it's funny, I read in one account, and I think 
reporters who are looking for information after the shooting would talk to anybody. And, the, you know, there, somebody said there was, like, no evidence Draga had anything but a friendly relationship with Scott Phillips, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, if you read this book, he obviously did not have a friendly relationship. And also, he had been looking for the guy's home address. No this shit. What, so, what, so he could send him flowers? So, I don't think so. Again, so again, I discount most of the stuff I yeah. read online about this. But there are people who make excuses for Carl Dragan. We'll talk about that later. Mm. But a second hearing from Tepe Wamet was scheduled for June 27, 1996, a few months after this. He showed up. But he didn't pay. On July 19th, a lien was placed on his property, and he paid a week later. Hmm. Then he filed suit against the estate of Sheriff Morton, who died recently, alleging that Morton knew he was working in Vermont and wouldn't have been able to attend the original hearing. I believe, though, if you can't attend a hearing, you notify the court. No shit. In February 1997, Draga bought a Colt AR-15 assault rifle at a Massachusetts gun show in a private sale. Yeah. The gun, if it had been made after 1994, wouldn't have been legal. That's because you could change out the magazine, um, which plays a big part in what happened in August, and do other things with it. But thanks to the NRA, the guns like that that were made before 1994 don't come under that ban. And they could be bought and, bought and sold privately with impunity. This was sold to him by a young man named Mark Pappas in Massachusetts. And this ended up being long, so I didn't go into a lot of that. But he later saw the carnage his gun had wrought on TV. And it's hard to tell what his reaction to it was. Oh, God. But shortly after Draga bought that gun, people who lived near him, including Bernard Ruthier across the river in Vermont and um, the sheriff of that county in Vermont and other people nearby, started hearing day-long gunfire coming from his property. Mm. It was around this time, too. This is according to Murderpedia, an unattributed thing that I haven't read anywhere else, that he equipped his property with early warning electronic noise and motion detectors. Mm. It wouldn't surprise me if he did have those, but I haven't read that anywhere else. Someone else also bought a gun in February 1997. Vicki Bunnell. I would have too. She didn't make a big deal about it, but her neighbor, Eric Stoll, the fish and game officer, knew because she came to his house one night asking to borrow a handgun he'd offered to lend her. She told him she'd ordered one of her own, but it wouldn't be there for a week. So, and he didn't ask her why, this being, you know, people keep to themselves. And also, he probably figured he probably knew. Well, he may have, but... um, He and others would find out later that that night, earlier that day, it was the first for the next six months until August 19th, that Draga would pull up in front of her office on Bridge Street and Colebrook and watch through her window. Yeah. I don't think he went right up to the window and peered in. I think he sat in his truck outside her office. And she saw it. Around then, it's hard to say because Carrie writes that it, it was that month, but then later he writes it was a couple months before the shooting. Draga visited Dr. Bob Susie in Colebrook for treatment of a sinus problem. Draga said to him, do you know who I am? And when Susie said no, Draga seemed surprised. And a lot of people in town did not know who Carl Draga was. The cops knew, but he was gone for months. He kept to himself on his property, and regular people did not know who he was. Yeah, that makes sense. He then went into to Susie, his whole long thing with the town, and Susie asked him if he held a grudge, and Draga said, I suppose I do. And Susie asked Draga if he had a problem with the police in town, and Draga smiled and said, no, I have a plan for them. Ooh. Susie worked with the police. He acted as a coroner at crime scenes and stuff, and he checked to see if Draga was on the police watch list. Draga wasn't. He said Draga made good eye contact and seemed calm and reasonable, so Susie didn't think much more about it. On Friday... August 15, 1997, Draga and Vicky walked by each other on Main Street. 
He yelled and swore at her and vowed to get even, and she just turned red, didn't respond, and hurried away, according to people who saw it. She attended an event that weekend with a lot of family and friends, including her on-again, off-again boyfriend, John Harrigan, the owner of the News and Sentinel and Lancaster's Coes County Democrat, but she didn't say anything to anyone about that encounter. Tuesday, August 19, 1997, started off like a normal northern New Hampshire August day for Vicki, as well as News and Sentinel editor Dennis Jose and state troopers Scott Phillips and Les Lord. Lord, 45, lived in Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, the last northern town before Canada, and he'd lived there all his life. He was the father of two boys, and he'd been a highway patrolman in New Hampshire for years. He wasn't thrilled when the state combined the highway patrol with the regular state trooper patrol the year before in 1996. He liked doing the highway patrol stuff. He wasn't as excited about the criminal I don't investigation. blame him. He was known as a good guy, a joker who didn't take himself or others too seriously. He wasn't a fan of the air of authority and pompousness some state troopers carried, and he delighted in popping that bubble. He was never happier than when doing his old highway patrol stuff, which he still did a lot of, weighing trucks, like especially logging trucks, climbing up the logs to measure the loads, driving fast. But he could also be counted on to jump in and be tough, too. The photo of him that would later get the most play was him with a big smile on his face that was part of a campaign for a local hospital where he had been treated for a heart attack, saying thanks to, uh, I think it's Upper Connecticut Valley Hospital, I'm alive. Aww. On August 19, 1997, about 6.30 in the morning, he stopped in J&R's Mini Mart in Pittsburgh, the way he usually did to get a coffee and donut. He was 18 months from retiring. Oh, no. Yeah, mm-hmm. On the way out, he almost ran into his wife, Bev, who was coming in, and they shared a quick laugh before going their separate ways. Les didn't have many enemies, but Carl Draga was one. Lord was one of the state troopers who responded to that incident at Columbia Town Hall in 1990, seven years before. That's the one where Draga was arrested. Les Lord is the guy who offered to give Draga a ride back to his car six no miles good away. No good goes unpunished. Yeah. Around the time... On April 19, 1997, that Les was headed to Colebrook, Vicki Bunnell's father, Earl Bunny Bunnell, who <laughs> he picked some wildflowers in his dooryard in Canaan, Vermont, across the river, and he had some errands to do in town. He stopped by Vicki's office just to say hi, put the wildflowers on her desk. No special reason, he told her, just passing through. Oh, what a nice day. Yeah, I know. Vicki, 45 had recently stepped down as Columbia Selectman after more than two terms when she was appointed Colebrook District Court Judge. She also was still a lawyer, and her office was in the office at the News and Sentinel building that was once occupied by the newspaper's former owner, another lawyer, Fred Harrigan. He had his law office in the newspaper office. He was current owner John Harrigan's dad, and he had died a few years before. There was still a brass plaque by the front door of the building with Fred's name on it when John gave Vicky the office and John asked Vicky that the plaque stay there and Vicky got one just like it for herself and put it below Fred's. Aww. And those are still there, by the way. Vicky liked to bring her dog, Talek, to work with her. And you'll read in some places she brought the dog to work for safety reasons, but she was just one of those people who liked to bring her dog to work. And she often hung out in the newsroom because it was right there. She'd gone away to become a lawyer, living in Washington State for a while, but had been lured back, like many in the North Country. She was a North Country girl at heart, and she loved to hunt and hike and spend time with her parents, and it was her community. Also at work, in the same building, bright and early, 
was Dennis Chose, one of the editors. Chose, 51, had been in a Franciscan seminary as a young mm. man, but had been released before final vows, many believe because of his streak of irreverent. <laughs> he loved a good joke. He loved to be irreverent. He was kind of like Les Lord. He liked to poke at authority. That probably didn't go over big. He was heartbroken, though, about being let go. He was Aww. a very gentle man. He and his wife, Polly, were followers of Scott and Helen Nearing. Oh, yeah. The, who, ad, the who, right, who advocated living off the grid. They'd written a best-selling book about it in the early 70s that you can look up. And they even went to Maine to visit them. The Everybody liked to under go. pilgrimage. And for many years, Dennis and Polly's 20 acres near Colebrook was off the grid, but they had a son, and as he grew up, and they got electricity, which I think they ran off a car battery, or at least did into the 80s, but they still live pretty simple lives. And he believed in nonviolence, the same principles espoused by the Franciscans, who were named after St. Francis. He wouldn't kill a spider, literally, in the office and told his co-workers if someone was scared by a spider to come and get him and he'd take care of it. Uh-huh. One day, he found Bino LaMontagne, the owner of Bino Laser LaMontagne. Works. Yeah. The owner of Laser Works Electronics Store across the street from the paper, trying to hide under the counter from a bee because he had bad allergies. Oh. I guess Bino was a big guy, but he was scared of bees because he... Bad allergies. Dennis caught the bee, cradling it in his closed uh-huh. hands, and let it out of the building. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. Gentle as he was, he was also a man of principle and often stood up to his boss, John Harrigan, on matters that he believed in not giving an inch. By August 19, 1997, he was considering leaving the high-pressure and sometimes depressing job at the newspaper for a lower-key one. He was very affected by people's troubles and other things, and it dragged him down. In 1973, he posted a sign on his property that was still there that day in 1997, please don't hunt here, I don't want to get shot. Mm-hmm. Also out and about that morning was Ed Jeffrey, the railroad guy who had the run-in with Draga two years before. Jeffrey was at the Blue Mountain Variety Store in Columbia to get some diesel fuel. Draga's claptrap orange pickup was already at the store's one diesel pump, filling five-gallon fuel containers that filled the truck bed. Hmm. They were held together by clothesline through the handles because the truck didn't have a tailgate. Of course it didn't. Right. (laughs) Jeffrey chatted with Draga as he filled the containers, helping to put the caps back on to hurry things along. Draga asked him if it was possible to reroute the railroad track that went through his property. Though it wasn't, Jeffrey said he'd look into it just to keep Carl happy. Mm -hmm. He asked Draga what he was going to do with all that diesel, and Draga laughed and said his tractor was out of gas. Jeffrey looked at the pump and said Draga had pumped 61.5 gallons of diesel. That's a lot of gas. Mm -hmm. Working in Colebrook that morning with Les Lord was Trooper Scott Phillips, 32. Phillips was charming and friendly, and like Lord, he was a local boy, and he was nephew of lieutenant in charge of the North Country's Troop F, Leo Chuck Jellison. Yeah, sorry. They probably have jokes like that. Leo Chuck Jellison, the one who as a trooper 13 years before had been shot as he and serial killer Christopher Wilder wrestled over Wilder's gun at Vic's Getty, which, as I said, was next door to the News and Sentinel building. That's right. Everything I know I said this before, if you put this at in a fiction place. novel, somebody would say there's too many... There's too much yeah, shit going right. on in this little town. Right. Phillips, the father of two young kids, was the kind of guy who always wanted to make things better for people and do the right thing. One time he got a call from a woman who just left her abusive boyfriend, and she was having trouble going back and getting her things because the boyfriend was making it hard for her. Phillips went with her. He calmed down the ex-boyfriend, 
He helped her and her friend load a truck with her things. He followed them to the new place. The truck had been packed so hastily, because she was scared, I guess, that things kept falling out. When they did, he'd stop, put on the blue lights, jump out of his cruiser and pick it up and put it back in the truck. He also stayed and gave her legal advice on separating her finances from her boyfriend's. He knew I had kids and I was just having a hard time, the woman said, as quoted in the book. He just wanted things to work out for me. He was a family man, and whatever he'd do for his family, he'd do for anyone else. Like Lord, he also had an impish side and would also get other officers, including those on the nearby border patrol, to accompany him to calls because he liked the company. (laughs) North Country State Troopers hung out at the Colebrook PD, which was in the basement of Town Hall, as I said, across the street from the one-story white painted brick News and Sentinel building. That day, August 19, 1997, the Colebrook Chief... Mike Selesky was off, and there was, it was a four-person police force, and the one patrolman, Steve Breton, was the one guy on duty. Although Dave Kucher, who was young, he was 24 and had just started, he'd hurt his ankle, could barely walk on it, and he was on light duty in a t-shirt and shorts doing paperwork and helping out around the office. Around 12.45, Phillips mentioned to Lord that Vicki had taken out a restraining order against Draga after the Friday screaming incident on Main Street. The cops had previously talked about taking Draga's pickup off the road because it didn't meet inspection (laughs) standards. And so this is where the confusion that he was stopped. About the rust. Yes. It was a real rattle trap. And they'd given him warnings, especially Les Lord, and that's probably one reason Draga didn't like him. But the state cops had agreed that taking away his plates wouldn't be worth the trouble. Even though he had a new pickup that he used when he traveled out of the area for jobs, they didn't want to give him another thing to be pissed off about. You'll read in a lot of places, as I said, that Drago was later pulled over because of, quote, rough spots on his pickup truck or something like that, and that's especially promoted by his supporters, but nothing is farther from the truth. Phillips was ready to take action because of what had happened with Vicky. Both troopers agreed that the restraining order wasn't worth much, so Phillips said that he'd look for Draga and have a little chat with him, and if Draga seemed ready to back off and leave Vicky alone, he'd give him another warning about the truck. But Phillips figured the reality was Draga wouldn't listen and get all pissed off, and if he did in that case, he was going to pull Draga's plates, because he just felt like he had to do something about Carl Draga. And it, it's just, we'll talk more after, but it's just people who are like this that are difficult to deal with and cause issues get away with so much more. They do. Because the rest of us are just kind of like, okay, let's just... Okay. But anyway, Scott Phillips said to Les Lord, I can't hear about shit like that, the incident that had happened with Vicky on Main Street the Friday before, and just sit on my ass waiting for a 911 call. I'm tired of getting there too late. That's right. So he asked Les if he was going to be around to help back him up. He'd had another trooper lined up for that, but the guy was up north at an accident, or south at an accident, it's hard to say. And you're probably getting by now, as I mentioned earlier, that this area was like one big small town. Almost everyone knew each other. Mm-hmm. New Hampshire Forest Ranger Bert Von Dorman was no different. That day, he had some errands to run. He wanted to see Vicky about a deed for property he was buying. He wanted to talk to the newspaper editor, Dennis Jose about a manuscript for a novel Jose was writing, and Jose had asked Bert to read it and check for accuracy on the logging stuff. Mm. He needed to have Scott Phillips sign some papers related to a timber theft. It was around 2.30 when he saw Phillips and Lord and their cruisers parked cop window-to-window style, as we are so familiar with, and they were parked in front of or next to the PD. Bert went over to talk to them, and they mentioned that Scott was going to be looking for Draga, or was looking for Draga. I guess he'd go out and look around and come back. 
on his patrols. Be careful with that guy, Bert said. He knew Draga, too. He was a forest ranger, so... After Phillips left, Bert stayed and talked to Les. They were buddies, and they were about to go down the road for a cup of coffee when Phillips came on the radio. Hey, I got him, he said. I'll just follow him a bit. Anytime you're ready, we can use you here. Bert asked Les if he wanted him to ride along, but the passenger seat of Les's car was piled with crap. Not unless you have a shovel, Les said. Mm. Then he said, we'll be all right. He told Bert he'd probably be about 20 minutes, and they agreed to have that cup of coffee after that. A lot can happen in 20 minutes. In this case, the three people Bert had come to town to see, as well as his friend Les, would all be dead. Oh, God. Phillips had spotted Drake going north on Route 3 out of downtown Colebrook, and he followed him, using his lights to pass a logging truck, but turned them off as the cruiser settled back behind Draga's pickup. Draga pulled down a ramp into the parking lot of La Pearl's IGA, the biggest grocery store in the area, and parked near the back of the lot. Phillips pulled in about 20 feet behind. He put on his trooper Stetson and got out, leaving the door open, and walked toward Draga's truck. Draga got out, too. Without saying anything, according to those who saw it, he put the AR-15 he'd bought in Massachusetts to his shoulder. There were a lot of people in the parking lot and the store, a typical Tuesday afternoon. One of them was Julie Roy, the clerk at the Pittsburgh J&R Mini Mart, who Les Lord had bought the coffee and donut from a little over eight hours before. She saw Phillips lift his hand, palms out. She said neither of them said a word. Draga fired. Phillips stepped back, fell to a knee, and reached for his gun while bullets strafed his cruiser and his legs. His hat fell off as he staggered to his feet. He managed to get around the cruiser as bullets sliced through the car. They just went through that car like friggin' butter. I bet. And shot out its windows. He was crouching down, trying to move, not towards the safety of the store, where shoppers had jumped behind cars or run inside, and it had your typical glass windows. He dragged himself to where Draga's gunfire would be less likely to hurt someone. He was firing with his left hand, I think he was right-handed, and trying to steady himself on the ground with his right hand, trying to take cover behind the last row of cars. He was shooting, but his aim was way off. Draga didn't take cover. He stood by his truck shooting. Phillips was obviously getting hit, witnesses said, but he kept moving behind the last of the parked cars and into the high grass next to the parking lot. Draga walked toward him, firing as he went, and he then went back to his truck for another ammo clip. Jesus. he was out of bullets. Meanwhile, two workers for the New Hampshire Electric Co-op, who were at a snack bar on top of a bluff overlooking the lot on Mm. the same side as where this was going, as where this was happening, they jumped in their truck and pulled it into the other end of the parking lot as one of them called or tried to call Colbert PD on the radio. They were looking for a way to maneuver the truck across and block the entrance when Les Lord's cruiser turned off Route 3 and came in. These guys are still across the lot. They didn't block the entrance. Witnesses said Lord was obviously unaware of what was going on. Drake had just finished attaching the new ammo clip to his assault rifle, the one that would have been illegal if the rifle had been made after 1994. He turned toward Lord's cruiser and raised the rifle to his shoulder, dropping to one knee. He fired directly into Lord's windshield, and the cruiser jerked to a stop, then went into reverse, backing up over the curb onto grass. Draga advanced, letting off 40 or 50 shots, witnesses said. The cruiser's windows exploded with the shots, and Draga kept going all the way to the passenger side window, He looked in the window, then stuck the muzzle of his rifle through it and fired several more times. Then he walked back to where Phillips was in the grass. The grass was high enough so people couldn't see Phillips lying there. Draga used the barrel of his rifle, I guess, to kind of part the grass to look for him. Witnesses at the snack shack up on the bluff 
couldn't see Phillips, but they heard him say, no, no. Oh, as he Draga, was still alive, man. Yeah, as Draga, he had multiple shots to his hips and legs oh, at this point. Poor man. But Draga pointed his rifle straight down, they saw, and fired four times. By this time, the Colebrook PD had been alerted that something was going on, but it wasn't clear yet what. Patrolman Steve Breton, the one who was on duty, he'd been on another call, but he sped to the IGA. On his way, a Ford station wagon flagged him down. It was Lenny Dennis, a former cop. He had a gun with him, and Breton needed backup, so he had Dennis jump in. Dennis knew the troopers were down. He'd been driving into the lot when a woman ahead of him, who had been driving in ahead of him, told him a trooper had been shot and to get the hell out of there. He saw Draga stalking the parking lot, and he, he decided to go get the local cops. They pulled in next to Lord's cruiser. It was clear he was beyond saving. Mm. They saw Draga about 40 yards away near Phillips' cruiser. He walked towards them, raising the rifle. Brayton pulled his gun, but there were people behind Draga, and he wasn't sure if this was even the guy. Lots of people had guns, and maybe this was another person responding maybe to the Maybe it was a good guy with a gun. Yeah, because it becomes clear, especially reading this book, every single person in Colebrook had a gun. Brayton got his shotgun out of his trunk, and he and Dennis ran up the slope to the snack shack, where there was a big dumpster that they took cover behind. He knew looking at Lord's cruiser that his Colebrook PD cruiser wouldn't be cover enough. Mm. Drake had just started shooting at them as Dan Kucher, the cop who was on light duty, wearing his t-shirt and shorts, arrived at the snack shack in his Chevy Cavalier with his gun in his shorts pocket, his mm. duty gun. He'd been filling him for the dispatcher who was on a break when the first call came in at 2.42 p.m. He joined Breton and Dennis behind the dumpster as Drake fired at them. He couldn't tell, though, who was shooting or where it was coming from. Kucher and Brayton took a lot of heat after this. I remember it well. It's also talked about in the book. They were crapped on for cowering behind a dumpster while troopers are getting shot. Mm. Given the situation and what they knew, I'm not sure what else they could have done. In Los Angeles a couple weeks ago, a manager of a Trader Joe's was fatally shot while police were trying to shoot a guy they were chasing. The people around Draga's rampage were a 13-year-old boy hiding in a car parked next to Draga's truck a small girl who'd been on a bicycle who was hiding now in a car of a woman who'd scooped her up who the girl didn't even know. And I don't think the cops were cowering. They were taking cover and trying to assess the situation and figuring out what was going on and trying to shoot. I mean, they could have just walked out right out there and gotten killed too. Right. If they were going to shoot somebody, they were going to shoot the right person, Mm -hmm. not the wrong person. The gunfire stopped. And Kutcher decided to circle to the woods and approach Draga from behind, but it was too late. And I think if you're not from a place like northern New England, you have to realize this supermarket, it's not like there's all these businesses around and stuff. There may be some, but a lot of things outside the small urbanish areas in Maine are there's surrounded woods. by woods. And even and, I work at Lowe's and there's woods right. There's woods right there, you know? But so Kutcher was going to try to flank him. But it was too late. Draga, who wasn't able to start his shitbox of a truck, walked to Phillips' cruiser, picking up the trooper's blood-spattered Stetson on his way. He got in, firing at Breton, Dennis, and Kutcher, as he did. And remember, this guy's firing at AR-15. And then he headed south on Route 3 back towards downtown Colebrook. In the News and Sentinel newsroom, they were huddled around the scanner. Something was going on at the IGA, a shooting, but it had gone to a Code 1000, which not only means it's something really big, but also... Most of Code 1000 stuff is on a non-public frequency, mm. much to the frustration of anyone in the newsroom who's trying to figure out by a scanner what's yeah. going on. One of the reporters grabbed a notebook and camera and, like happens at all newspapers, headed out the door to the scene. She wasn't the only reporter racing to the scene. Farther south in Littleton, 
Lorna Calhoun, Ooh. the North Country correspondent for the New Hampshire Union Leader, got a call from her boss, Buzz Heber. And I'd love to do my Buzz imitation, but I'm not good at imitations. Uh, Lorna, it seems that two troopers have been shot <laughs> up in Colebrook. Do you think you could go up? It would be something like that. Okay. And you won't read Lorna's name in Carrie's book. And his references to New Hampshire's daily statewide paper and its North Country correspondent are fairly dismissive. But I'd like to set the record straight. Yeah. yeah. Lorna got the call from Buzz at 2.45, four minutes after Draga fired his first shot. Ugh. She was on the road by three. And while New Hampshire's a small state, she lived on the other side of the mountains. And although she was still in the North Country, there's one road through those mountains, Route 3. It was an August afternoon and traffic was heavy through the notch that you have to go through. But she hit the pedal once she got north of Lancaster, which was 36 miles away, realizing that none of the stadies who were roaring past her with their lights on were going to pull her over. And she realized it was something friggin' big when you mm. see that. Yeah. Um, Several months ago, a sheriff in Somerset County, north of where I live, was shot, and his body was discovered around 7 in the morning, and I was driving to work in Portland, south of here. About 7.15 was when I was on the highway, and I saw all sorts of police, not only state police, but unmarked sheriffs from different jurisdictions all going north some with their lights on some without and i my thoughts were holy shit something big has happened holy shit i'm glad i don't know work for a newspaper anymore and have to figure out what's going on at this time of morning and then holy shit i wish i still worked for a newspaper yeah but in any case in the news and sentinel newsroom vicky had come out of her office to listen to the scanner but she was now back at her desk she had plans to leave early that day she was going on a six-week vacation to the mediterranean With some friends, and that afternoon she also had plans for a ride in a friend's float plane. Oh, Vicky. No one at the News and Sentinel had heard back yet from the reporter. Again, no cell phones. One of the employees who'd worked in a hospital had locked the front door, an automatic response to an emergency. Well, it gives and takes, as you'll see. Okay. State police cruisers license plates have the badge number of the officer on them. The one that pulled up on Bridge Street in front of the News and Sentinel, it didn't roar up and slam on its brakes, is one account I read gave, but it moseyed up and parallel parked behind another car, but the number on the plate was 608. Someone in the office heard Vicky say, her office looked out on Bridge Street, okay, what's Scotty Phillips doing here? Mm, but no, then, Vicky, no. I know. But then, seconds later, Vicky walked back into the newsroom from her office. She wasn't panicking, but had a sense of urgency. Susan Zizza, an editor, said Vicky said, he's here, everybody get out. Someone else thought it was, my God, he's got a gun, everybody run. Other accounts were, it's Carl and he's got a gun. And the union leader newsroom standby was, it's Draga and he's got a gun. Mm. In any case, the message was clear and people headed for the back door. I think in a situation like that, it's hard to remember exactly what was said. Yeah. But the sense of it was, Vicky was the fifth one out the door. She told those ahead of her to run across the parking lot to the back door of Ducret Sporting Goods, which was about 40 yards across a fairly empty parking lot away. Some did, some took cover under cars, and some just ran. Draga, who'd tried the front door and found it locked, had gone around the building. Those ahead of Vicky didn't realize that they'd run right by him, about an arm's length away. I think they were just blindly running. When Vicky came out, he fired. Mm. Vicky collapsed on the pavement. Several shots hit the frame of Ducret's back door as those fleeing ran in. Another woman who'd been at the screen door leading out to the back parking lot, about to run out, turned and ran and hid in the storage room. Oh Dennis Jose was behind her. 
he could have run back in and hidden the storage room too. But Jose, unarmed and about 5'7 and 150 pounds, launched himself through the door at 6'2, 200 plus pound Carl Draga. Jose landed on Draga's back, wrapping his arms and legs around him, trying to grab the gun. They fell onto the hood of a car, then lurched the grass of a park next to the building. Draga shook Dennis off, as you can imagine, and Dennis grabbed the barrel of the gun, which must have been, as Carrie, the book author, describes, hot as a branding iron, and Draga managed to squeeze off three shots as they struggled with the gun. One went through Dennis's ear, one into his arm, and Jose was still fighting for the gun when the third went through his stomach and he fell backwards. Bino Lamontagne, watching across the street from Laser Works, was screaming at Draga to stop, but Draga ignored him. Draga walked over to Vicky, and the book doesn't say this unless I missed it, but I think he shot her again, mm. but I'm not totally sure. Then he went back to Dennis and said, you should have minded your own fucking business, and he fired four bullets into Dennis's back, Ugh. the same way he had with Scott Phillips. Then he walked back to the cruiser and pulled out, going around the corner where he stopped in front of Town Hall. The pastor of the Baptist Church next to Town Hall came out when he heard the gunshots. He locked eyes with Draga for what he said were 15 or 20 very awkward seconds. And he said the look on Draga's face was almost as chilling as what had happened. Draga then did a slow U-turn back past the town office and turned south on Route 3. And some people think he was waiting outside the town hall for police to run out, and probably not realizing that the one cop on duty and the one guy were over at the supermarket. Draga wasn't done. A list was never found on him, but he obviously had one in his head. He stopped by Dan Wilmette's shop. That's the contractor he'd had the beef with. But no one was there. Same with conservation officer Eric Stoll, who was at his son's house clearing some brush or something that day. I'm not sure how they know he stopped at those places, but it says so in Carrie's book. He also went by Columbia Town Hall, which was vacant. Other people might have seen his truck. Stop at these people's houses. And oh, yeah. Know. Yeah, that's I mean, possible. He had that, oh, right. no, he was in the cop he car. He was in the police cruiser, which people would have noticed, too. Mm. He also stopped at the home of Ken Parkhurst, the Columbia selectman he'd been squabbling with for Can 25 years. Can you imagine being one of those people? I know. And for more, read the book. The <laughs> Columbia selectman he'd been squabbling with for 25 years. Parkhurst normally would have been home, but he was at the dentist, which was in Canada. He liked the dentist on Canada. <laughs> and his wife, the town clerk Isabel, normally would too, or would have been oh, at the town hall. Oh, this was pre nine one one. That's right. I was like, yes. you could cross the border pretty yeah, easily. Yeah, you could go into Canada. Yeah. Um, but Ken dropped her at her sister's on the way to the dentist. She would have been at home or at town hall. Draga kicked in the front door. Mm. When he saw no one was home, he drove across the lawn, tearing up the grass. Ken Parker's niece lived across the street and saw that. Draga stopped home. He shaved off his chin strap beard and changed from his plaid flannel shirt to a blue denim one. So the bearded guy with the plaid flannel shirt, which could be most of the men in New Hampshire, (laughs) no longer applied. He threw on a police ballistics vest and cut down the barrel of his rifle. Well, don't we all have one of those in our closet, a police ballistics vest? Yes, he bought it through a mail-order catalog. And aside, one annoying thing about Carrie's book is that in this scene, as well as the one where Phillips follows him, and that morning dawns, he imagines what Drake is thinking. Oh, I hate that. I think it's unnecessary and very possible misleading and yes, not accurate. I don't like that. He gives a little rationalization in the foreword of his book, but I don't think it works. I don't and like also, it. his writing, no. which is not bad, but can be a little affected, bursts into full flower, I think, to make up for the lack of facts. Mm-hmm. And it's just very off in the you book. You don't need it. The book would be better off without it. 
I maybe part of it is because people want to know what was in Carl Drago's head, but guessing, especially when you could be totally wrong, doesn't. I mean, he's doing a lot of thinking about his wife and all this shit. Who the fuck knows? But anyway, meanwhile, back at the IGA, liquor inspector Dan Marini, who's an officer of the law, but not generally involved in this type of thing and didn't have a gun with him, was picked up by Colbrook police officer Steve Breen. I guess he left Lenny Dennis at the scene. He wanted back up going to Columbia to check at Vicki Bunnell's house. They didn't know what had happened yet at the News and Sentinel. God. And they thought Drago would be headed to Vicky's. And it's funny, another thing, and you really have to read the book to get the full flavor, is the amount of different law enforcement people, most of them who it was their day off. Yeah, they just happened who to be happened around. to be around. I think someone got Dan Marini a gun from somewhere because he, he actually ends up playing a big part in this. But they went in Marini's car, a Plymouth Duster, <laughs> because Breton didn't want Drago to know they were cops. Breton took his badge off. And he was still wearing his uniform, but tried to slump down in the seat. Vicky, of course, wasn't home. And as they drove toward Draga's house, they saw a cruiser pulling out of the driveway Uh-oh. back onto the road. Breton thought maybe they should disable the cruiser by ramming it with the duster. But the cruiser was a crown vet. Yes. I don't and think if you've seen them. So Marini figured it would disable them, not Draga. Right now, they were the only ones who knew where he was. And they decided to follow. As they passed the property, they noticed smoke rising. As they called in that they were following him in an unmarked car, because Marini had a radio. Thank God. They realized the radio in Draga's cruiser was probably on. Oh, shit. That's right. Uh, And even though it was a Code 1000, it was a cop car. So uh, still they figured, okay, too late now, and they had to take a chance because, you know. So he drove across the bridge to Bloomfield, Vermont, and they followed him. By now, there were law enforcement agents from all over New Hampshire and Vermont, including Fish and Game, Border Patrol, County Sheriffs, and more swarming the area. But one issue was many of the radios didn't communicate with each other. Mm. Remember at 911, that was an issue too. And most of the frequencies were jammed with too much traffic as this was all going on anyway. On the last chance power drive. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Many of them didn't know what had happened, and they thought they were chasing a stolen cruiser. And that somebody was taking a joyride in someone's cruiser, and that was it. One of the people thinking this was New Hampshire fishing game officer Wayne Saunders, who was on duty but had been talking to a buddy, another fishing game officer, I think down in Groveton, when they heard on the radio that there was a stolen cruiser. And when they heard it was Scott Phillips, they heard the number and knew it was Scott Phillips. Wayne Saunders, who was a friend of Scott Phillips, said, well, I can see Les Lord getting his cruiser stolen, but I can't see Scott Phillips getting his cruiser stolen. So he was concerned, but he didn't know... You know, they thought it was kids or something. So as Marini and Breton followed Draga into Vermont, they saw a New Hampshire fish and game cruiser approaching from another direction. And that was Wayne Saunders. He saw the cruiser and he turned on his blue lights. They were nearing to Bamville's general store in Bloomfield, Vermont, which is just over the bridge. And a little beyond it on Route 102 is a railroad trestle. Saunders neared the trestle and he had lost sight around a curve of the cruiser. Drago's cruiser. As he pulled around and near the trestle, he saw it there on the left side of the road, about 20 feet in front of him. Drago had stopped waiting for him. Uh-oh. Drago, wearing a ballistics vest and um, Philip Stetson, yeah, was standing cool. ne- outside of the car next to it, pointing a rifle at Saunders. And Saunders heard the shot at the same time he felt something hit his uh-huh. chest hard. His arm went limp. He fell to his right. He had been taught that your best place to shield yourself is behind the engine block of your car. So he fell to the right, hoping he was behind his engine block, and he hit reverse. He peeked up and saw a group of people on the deck of the store, 
that was right there and yelled, get the fuck out of here. But none of them moved. More shots rang out, shattering his windshield, and the people on the porch screamed and ran. Duh. He hit the gas and sped backwards blindly as shots pelted the car and the windows burst. Oh, my God. He went across a neighboring yard and careened down the riverbank, where the cruiser bounced off some trees before getting hung up in the growth, the only thing that was keeping it from plunging into the Connecticut River, which is a big river. Yeah. Um, Up there, it's not as big as it is farther down, but... Before the shooting, Vermonter Joe Lizzie had come to a stop next to the cruiser. It was kind of blocking his way, and he wasn't sure what was going on. He watches the gunmen. Definitely, he realized, not a New Hampshire state trooper, even though he was wearing the hat, blast away. And then the shooter turned to him, and Lizzie thought he was a goner. Just then, an old woman who'd been walking down the street and had been <laughs> standing there said to Draga, Was that the bear? Did you get him? That bear's been bothering people around here. <laughs> now, I don't know if she was really, really smart or really, really unobserved. But in any case, laugh. I know. In any oh case, my God. Drake got into the cruiser <laughs> and drove away. <laughs> Brayton and Marini saw the whole thing, but they couldn't get a shot at Draga because they were blocked by Joe Lizzie and his Toyota. Saunders didn't die. While Draga's bullet hit him in the chest, it hit his badge, driving the badge into his chest. And then it ricocheted up and hit him in the shoulder. Went through his shoulder. A photo of the bent badge made all the papers. It was like bent in half and it embedded right into his... He had vascular damage and all sorts of stuff. Brayton didn't know that at the time, however. Saunders was in pain and bleeding. He got himself out of the cruiser and crawled up the riverbank. And I guess the cruiser sat there with its lights going for a long time. Brayton had someone at the store drive him and Saunders to Upper Connecticut Valley Hospital in Colebrook, the same place Dennis Jose had been taken, trying to keep Saunders alive. He was bleeding all over the place. They drove past the carnage on Bridge Street in Colebrook, but didn't really know what had happened there. Marini and his Plymouth Duster stayed at the scene in Vermont. He couldn't chase Drake because now he had to secure the crime scene. Yeah. Oh, my God. And he didn't know if Saunders was going to live or not. The scenes were chaotic, with people at both not knowing what had happened at the other. It was clear, though, that Scott Phillips, Les Lord, and Vicki Bunnell were dead. <sighs> Bob Susi, the doctor who'd met Drake a few months before was the coroner at the scene, mm. and he pronounced them dead. Dennis, as I said, had been taken to the hospital. The New Hampshire State Police Major Crimes Unit was coming up from Concord a few hours away, but resources were tight, and Vicky's body would lie in the parking lot for hours. Ah. Um, though someone covered it with a camel blanket from Ducret's Sporting Goods, it didn't cover the large pool of blood that spread across the asphalt. It was there till I think, after 11 o'clock at night. Mm. Another crime scene was Draga's property, which he'd set on fire. He set his cabin on fire. Officials allowed it to burn after they realized it might be booby-trapped. Across the river in Vermont, no one was quite sure where Draga was. There were roadblocks on 102, and members of the half-dozen or so more law enforcement agencies now involved fanned out down the tangled dirt roads and into the woods trying to figure out where he was. And they had the Essex County Sheriff there, Amos Colby. They kind of determined, they had a roadblock up, I think, and kind of determined he was in this one area. But there were all these old tote roads and dirt roads. And some speculation was he probably ditched the cruiser and got back across the river. It was August, and there's actually one or two places where it's so low you could walk across 
Um, but it would have been high enough he would have had to hold the gun up like oh, yeah. a chest high or something. So they thought maybe he did that. The other problem is at this point there were New Hampshire State cruisers careening all over looking for him. And he was, he was driving one. one yeah. So that confused With things With a more. hat on. Right. And another thing what made it confusing is a lot of people, including the sheriff, were wearing plaid shirts and had beards, and nobody knew at that point that Drake had changed his clothes. Oh, and shaved. And shaved. So heading up that search was the lieutenant from Troop F, who'd tangled with Christopher Wilder all those years before at the Getty Station. Chuck Jellison, Scott Phillips' uncle, by the way, Aww. and he knew his nephew was dead at this Aww. point. Father and some farmers, Dean and Dan Hook, were haying a field in the area, and they were told by the cops to get back home. Between the field and their home, or something, it's hard to really tell what the geography, was a 50-acre tangle of woods by the river that decades before had been the site of a resort hotel because of the mineral springs. It's called Brunswick Springs. But the hotel was long gone. Every time it was built over the past 150, 200 years, it burned down. Ooh, it was haunted. Yes. The result, many believe, of an Abnaki curse on the land. Mm. The Abnakis had nursed a wounded British officer back to health during the French and Indian War in 1748. But then he'd come back after the war wanting to bottle and sell the water that had he thought was responsible for him being alive. The Abnakis weren't big on that. They got into a tussle, and a woman and her baby were killed. Ooh. Is this myth or... No, this really happened. Oh, this happened, okay. What's myth is that the Abnakis put a curse it's on It's not a myth. It's obviously <laughs> true. So, but the, in any case... How many hotel, times does a thing have to burn down? Right. And so at this point, it's a tangle of woods. There are there, so we should go check it out sometime. Oh, yeah. Because I wanted go. to go. Cold. I love to no. go through the woods. It's only 50 acres, okay. but there's these old concrete stairs Ooh, going up that, that are, creepy. yeah, you can see it online. Okay. Dean Hook was the town constable, and he and his son figured they better check out Brunswick Springs before they, I guess they had to bring the tractor and hay wagon through there to get it home. So they went and got their guns, and they started poking around. As they crept up a ridge, they heard a police radio very loud. They crept up to the top of the ridge, and below them, they saw the Crown Vic facing back down the tote road it had come, which would have been quite difficult to turn it around in that woody area. But it was facing the way it had come. They saw plaid arms on the dashboard through the steering wheel. They crept back and went half a mile down the road to tell the cops. Things in Colebrook, meanwhile, had quieted down relatively. John Harrigan, the News and Sentinel owner had arrived from the other newspaper in Lancaster, and those who returned to the building decided to remake the paper. Some people didn't come back. Some people didn't want to come back. But the ones who were there decided, even though the paper had been near completion, that they were going to redo it. They left in the last articles Joe's had written. It kind of was a tribute to him. Lorna, my friend at the union leader, remembers that when she got downtown around 4.45, it was eerily quiet. She still didn't know what was going on. She had been told two troopers had been shot, and that's all she knew. Downtown was much quieter. Like, you read Carrie's book, and it sounds like it was a frenzy, but I think that started later when more reporters started. I think at this point... Yeah, because she got there. People weren't around. Again, no cell phones or anything. So the first thing she did, and she didn't even know at this point, I don't think, that anything happened at the News and Sentinel. Though I'm not sure. I can't remember because she told me this a long time ago, and I didn't recheck with her. She had to call the office. So she went into an ice cream shop that was coincidentally across the street from the newspaper. Or maybe not coincidentally. I don't know. The people in there told her what had happened. But she called her boss, Charlie Perkins, the bigger boss than Buzz Hebert, who I did the imitation of earlier. 
Um, and he asked her if she could keep the line open. And she was like, oh, gee, I don't know. But she asked the people at the shop, and they said for the union leader, yes, they would keep the line open. So all you people dismissive of the union leader's role in this, kiss my ass. And she had some ice cream, I hope, while she was there. I hope so, but I don't know. As reporters began to descend on the town, many asked to use the phone because this was the day. I don't think there were many pay phones in Colebrook. And back, and I can tell you being a reporter in the late 80s, early 90s, you would knock on people's door and ask to use their phone, and people would let you in and let you use their That's phone. That's nice. So it's a simpler time. The ice cream shop owner told the other reporters, no, you can't use this. We have to keep it open for the union leader. For Lorna. Well, and for her boss to call her <laughs> to and find out. She was calling in. I was a sports editor at the time, but remember this. She was calling in every time she found out something she'd call in. Nice. It was shortly after she arrived that someone called the shop to tell them that Dennis had died. Oh. In Vermont, posted at the command site, when Dean and Dan Hooks arrived to tell them they had found the cruiser, included Border Patrol Agent John Pfeiffer. I may be pronouncing that wrong. There's a lot of P's and F's. Troop F, State Trooper, New Hampshire State Trooper. You'll read in some places he's Vermont, but it's New Hampshire. Jeff Calder, he was a member of the SWAT team and had gone to the police academy of Scott Phillips. And there were a bunch of others and a dog. So those two guys, four others from different agencies and the dog, were sent into the woods of Brunswick Springs to see what was going on with the cruiser. Dean Hooks, the farmer, advised them not to take a direct approach, but to go on over the ridge that was kind of off to the side like he and his son had done. I guess there's one road, an old tote road, that you could kind of get in there. Other roads were too blocked off with tree fall and stuff. It's not known if those in the detail discounted the information or just didn't hear it. In any case... They just marched on down the tote road. Mm. Some assume by now Drake had probably killed himself. I don't know why, but maybe because in those cases people do. Um, and anyway, they had a ton of guns with them. So what's to worry about? They went in pairs with the guy with the dog, Major, leading Aww, the way. Doggy. As they rounded a bend about 300 yards in, they saw the cruiser about 90 yards ahead. Calder, the NH police SWAT guy, realized that someone who was going to kill himself wouldn't have taken the trouble in the dense woods to turn the cruiser around so it was facing out, wouldn't have taken the trouble to have the radio blaring. Hmm. Pfeiffer, the Border Patrol agent, was relieved when he saw the arms across the dashboard, but then realized it was an empty shirt. They were basically in a narrow valley with rises on either side of them. Major, the dog, alerted and pulled his cop owner to the right over a little berm. Major's Um, a smarty. I know. There, up on the ridge, about 30 yards waiting for them was Draga. He stepped from behind the trunk of a very large hemlock tree, wearing the Stetson, aiming the AR-15. One of the troopers yelled, State police, let me see your hands. Draga fired. New Hampshire State Trooper Rob Hasse, who was behind Calder, was hit in the boot. Then Calder was hit somewhere above his knee. John Pfeiffer, who fired a dozen rounds at the tree trunk where Draga was, saw Calder get hit and knelt over him, trying to help him get to cover while still he was still shooting. He was like still trying to shoot at Draga and cover Calder. The two got behind the berm, and Pfeiffer tried to apply pressure to the leg. And as he did, he was shot. (sighs) Calder started to pull himself down the road. He was waiting to see if it was his femoral artery. And he counted. He had read somewhere it takes a minute to die. So he counted to 60. And when he was still alive, he decided he was going to try to get out of there. He started pulling himself down the road by his arms, leaving a trail of blood behind him. 
State Police Detective Chuck West, and I read this 20th anniversary thing, and it recounted some of the heroism of people and doesn't mention this guy, and I don't know why, but he was a narcotics detective. He ran to Calder in the line of fire and grabbed him by the ballistics vest and started hauling him up the road. And he got him around the bend. More help came, including EMTs. And the 20th anniversary story also said that one issue was that all the cruisers had parked on the narrow road at the opening, so the ambulances oh, now couldn't get yeah. down it. So the injured guys, they had to go down the road to try to get them out, which was a problem. Calder told them they had to get to Pfeiffer. He's spitting up pink foam. Ugh. The officers at the scene to get Pfeiffer out had Essex County Sheriff Amos Colby back his Jeep down the road as they took cover behind it and shot at Draga to kind of keep him from shooting at them. And Pfeiffer was lying in the middle of the road, coughing and spitting blood. Oh, my god! Chuck West, the same guy who had pulled Calder, went over and picked him up by the boots. Another guy came out and picked him up by the vest, but he was too heavy, so another guy came out. Draga started shooting, and they dropped him. But then they grabbed him by the boots and dragged him behind the berm. So now they're all back behind that berm. Ugh. Chuck West and another state trooper, Steve Brooks, both noticed Drago was staying in one place and popping out to shoot. And I'm oversimplifying this. This was a lengthy... It, the shootout was about 45 minutes. Oh, my God. And like I said, you can read... The book is detailed and has a great account. But anyway, they both shot at him the next time he popped out and got him. Brooks had a moment of panic when he realized there were other cops up on the ridge now. But when they found Drago's body down the riverbank, where he'd rolled until he hit a tree before rolling into the river, it was him, and he was dead. The staff at the News and Sentinel, just like the Capitol Gazette in Annapolis 20 years later, put out a newspaper. Among other challenges... The state police tried to shut them down, saying the newsroom was a crime scene, but owner John Harrigan was finally able to convince them that none of the crime happened in the building, that Drago wasn't in the building, he didn't shoot in the building. Harrigan is actually the one person in the story besides my friend Lorna, who I know. He, although only slightly, he wrote an outdoors column for the New Hampshire Sunday News, and when I was sports editor, we'd talk on the phone and stuff. He called the office. There's a very good interview with him on YouTube that he did, either after the Capital Gazette thing or last year about how they put the paper out that I encourage people to check out, and I'll eventually get it up on our website. If you Google YouTube on YouTube, if you search for John Harrigan, Colebrook, Drago, whatever, it'll come up. Um, but he also let Lorna in around 6 that night to take some photos and get some stuff for her story, something he didn't do with any of the other oh, that was nice. outside reporters. And she says when the cop at the door balked at Harrigan letting her in, He told um, the cop it's okay, she's a journalist. And I just want to say that, too, because you read it in the book, it's a very condescending account of what happened. Lorna says, among other things, the article Jose was writing when he left the building and tried to stop Carl Drago was still up on his computer screen. Harrigan wrote the News and Sentinel's story as well as an editorial. He apologized to readers. Quote, we'll do a better job with the loss and what this is all meant in next week's paper. Right now it's just too much, and getting the paper out is all we can manage. The paper, by the way, was only half an hour late getting to press. Wow. It sold out the next day, and they had to print extra editions. Time Magazine, with some of that big city wink at the small town stuff that gets so annoying, had this to say, quote, In the days that followed the tragedy, there were signs that Colebrook was trying to cope. Black ribbons were hung from the banners in town that say, Colebrook welcomes you. 
Up at the Balsams, which is a big resort hotel, the resort and Dixfield Notch, guests were graciously asked for their patience as the staff tried to deal with the terrible tragedy. And almost by way of apology, a sign on Route 3 read, The Moose Festival has been canceled. There is no way for Colebrook to replace quickly four such important people. But as the local paper showed by carrying on that night, there is a way to honor them. Uh And Time Magazine wrote that, uh, I think a couple weeks after the shootings. Law enforcement officials say they don't know if Draga planned his rampage that day or if it was spontaneous. But the guy was obviously gearing up. He bought the diesel fuel that morning. He had the assault rifle in his truck. He might not have planned it that day, but he planned it. Right. The day after the shooting, police uncovered multiple firearms, 80 pipe bombs, and bomb-making supplies in what was left of his barn. Besides the 61.5 gallons of diesel, there were 600 pounds of ammonia nitrate. And who does that make you think of? Two years after the Oklahoma City bombing, he was using Timothy McVeigh's recipe. There were also books about bomb-making and weaponry. One of the rumors you'll read that's not true is that they found an elaborate network of tunnels on the property. There were none. They also suspected booby traps, but didn't find any, although a lot of accounts say the property was elaborately booby-trapped. When they burned down the barn, which they ended up doing, there were explosions, but there was a lot of shit in there. Yeah. Even a barn where somebody is in a friggin' nutcase that's stockpiling stuff, there's going to be explosions because there's stuff in there that, that's probably right. going to explode right. when flame I mean, it. and there's even, like, I think they took most of the stuff out, but, you know, there's stuff in there. Lorna remembers that they called a press conference the next day. It was raining, and they laid all the weapons and pipe bombs out on a tarp for the press to see. Which they love to do. Right. And those of you who are fans of Crime Writers On... If you look at the picture of that in the book, I believe you will see a very young Kevin Flynn crouching down and holding a microphone. I think that's him. It's been a long time, but the three officers shot in Vermont all lived, but the scars of many who were involved on that day still linger. In New Hampshire.com 20th anniversary story last year, Fish and Game Colonel Kevin Jordan, who that day was one of the guys up on the ridge, said that communications technology is tenfold better than Mm, it was back then. Conservation officers now also have bulletproof vests and improved firearms. They are also better trained, he said, and because of what happened that day, much warier in the field and therefore possibly safer. Quote, We were living in kind of a dream that it was a good, safe job, but we hadn't ever been faced with combating an individual running around with a semi-automatic rifle when we have a five-shot bolt-action rifle, no bulletproof vest, and a radio system where we couldn't talk to Vermont, he said. In the days following August 19th, people, as they always do, search for a motive. Just as with Jared Ramos in Annapolis and Las Vegas shooter Stephen Paddock and so many others, People want to be able to point to one specific reason. In fact, recent articles about Paddock following reports that were just released lay out all the obvious red flags in these lengthy articles and then conclude with, but there was still no motive given. My feeling is all those red flags laid out are the motive. The motive is in their in their mind. I mean, right. they're, they're delusional. Right. And I think people, again, make the mistake of thinking people like that are just like people like us, and there must be some big reason but they did it. what kind of motive could there be anyway? Right. There are no reasons. What reason could there be? (laughs) My guess as to why Draga wasn't on the cops' watch list is that he hadn't done anything outrightly violent unless you count shooting at Vicki Bunnell and tax assessor Louis Jolin. But his behavior over 25 years should have been a clue that he was a danger. Sure, there are other people like him in New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine and a lot of other places. The remoteness and other factors are a draw. But by the time Scott Phillips says... 
I don't want to wait for the 911 call because by then it's too late. It was too late. Jordan, the fish and game officer interviewed in 2017, comes closest now, saying that law enforcement failed to recognize the serious threat that Draga posed. We all laughed at him, he said. We all thought he was a joke and a little out there and shame on us. That was another lesson that was learned, although I don't know how much it's been learned. He says there were signs. Quote, when someone takes a rifle strapped to their back to get the mail, that's not normal behavior. Also lost in the discussion, and this is Maureen, now not Kevin Jordan, is the misogyny, I believe, that added to Draga's anger. While Draga was angry at many people, his primary focus was Vicki Bunnell. Despite the fact that on several occasions she convinced others not to press charges, something he didn't know about, but still, despite the fact that there were others who had more encounters with him, Ken Parkhurst, for instance, and he went looking for him that day, too, Bunnell is the one whose office he sat outside for six months. She's the one who he seemed to get angriest at in person. Because he can afford because to, because she's a woman. Right. Believe it or not, Draga has his defenders. Members of his family say police and town officials harassed him, and there are the usual gaggle on the internet and other places who thinks he's some kind of hero. John Harrigan, in that YouTube interview about the newspaper that I mentioned, under that there's one comment, and it's by an idiot who says Draga was harassed and what he did was justified. I find that disgusting. His sister, Jane Draga, shortly after the shooting, said her brother had just returned to the area that summer after being in other states on carpentry jobs. She said he told her on the phone a couple nights before the shooting that police and other officials in New Hampshire were harassing him. She said she thought it got to the point where he couldn't take it anymore. I don't think he was completely out of the area. I think he was in and out because when he was there, he was sitting outside Vicki Bunnell's uh, 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 I don't have to point this out, but I will anyway. The reason there are laws is that we all have to live in a world together, no matter how much of an island you'd like to be, whether you like it or not. The town wanted siding on barns so the town wasn't full of tar paper shacks that bring down everyone's property values. If you put 80 feet of riprap into the river, it's going to erode the farm of the guy across and also affect how the river flows below it, which goes through three states. If your truck won't pass inspection, it means it's a safety hazard. Frequently, despite the fact he courted conflict, Drago was treated with friendliness and given a break by people, most notably Les Lord, Scott Phillips, and Vicki Bunnell. They all, at several times, didn't go nearly as far as they could have, and they treated him with respect and sometimes even kindness, which he was totally lost on him. Didn't deserve it. The biggest irony of this is that he was isolated just like he wanted to be. Few in town knew who he was, except for law enforcement people, despite the fact that he thought everybody knew who he was. Hmm. But his behavior is what cut into that isolation. One sad footnote is that less than a week after the shootings, Epsom police officer Jeremy Sharon, who was working a night shift in his southern New Hampshire town after coming back from the memorial service for the, for the cops, approached a car in a park where two guys were sleeping, and one of them, Gordon Perry, came out and shot him to death. Ugh. It had nothing to do with Draga. Perry is serving a life sentence in Maine State Prison in Warren, even though this happened in New Hampshire. And if you want to see him, you can check out the PBS documentary about solitary confinement, because he's featured in it. Not to bite the hand that fed me on this, the writer of In the Evil Day, which is the book I got a lot of the information from, well, he manages to do a great job portraying the courage of those at the newspaper who 
put it out despite the fact that their editor had been shot and there was a body lying out in the parking lot oh and that they knew God. all these people. Well, he does that. He also somehow manages to be condescending and snippy about the journalists who came to Colebrook to cover the story. And that's quite a trick. It goes both ways, though. If the ones in that office had to do their job, so did the ones outside of that office. I don't think that the writer of this is a journalist. I, I think he... I write, he teaches at Southern New Hampshire University in the MFA writing program. And he did seem to get quite close and drawn in by the people he talked to. And so a lot of this is their point of view. But when something horrific happens, good journalists feel the horror too. The best ones know that the story needs to be told and they're the ones to tell it. And they have to be the ones to tell it. And that's why all those journalists, including Lorna, who did a great job, but whose name wasn't in the book and who was referred to in a very condescending way in the book, did the job she did. It's not available online because it was 1997. Mm-hmm. But I was talking to her about it a few years ago with some of our other journalist friends, the news chicks. And she said that she felt like everything in journalism seemed to change after that story, that it was one of the last boots on the ground events where journalists of our generation did what we did the way we did it. And she said it better than that. But. Which is going to the crime, going right. to the yep. she event. Said, right. She yeah. said the reporters were up there for days wearing the same clothes, scrounging meals because of where it was and the technology yeah. back then and trying to find telephones. And one final note on the book itself. He does a great job of pulling together the details of the actual event and letting you know who the victims were and what Colbrook was like. And it's very good in that way, but my two issues, again, are with his attitude towards the non-News and Sentinel journalists. And, as I said earlier, his imagined dragon Ugh, thoughts, which those. unnecessary, misleading. I don't like books like that. Especially knowing what we know, you know, like the gift of fear stuff and how people like Draga think. He ties a lot of it to Draga's still imagine or maybe real grief over his wife dying but uh-huh. there's no way of knowing. Right, there's no way of knowing. And doing that, I think, it hits a bad note on an otherwise book that I, I do still recommend the book. It's the best resource on this, since the few other things out there aren't that detailed, are full of mistakes. And I urge anyone out there who wants to know more to read it, it's In the Evil Day by Richard Adams Carey. I found it on Kindle. And since the shooting, U.S. Route 3 between Pittsburgh and Colebrook has been renamed or named Trooper Leslie G. Lord Highway. Colebrook to North Stratford is the Trooper Scotty Phillips Highway. Blue Mountain in Columbia, where Vicki Bunnell lived, is now Bunnell Mountain, and it's surrounded by the Vicki Bunnell Preserve. It's making me sad. I know. The brass plaque with her name is still next to the News and Sentinel door underneath Fred Harrigan's. In the park next to the News and Sentinel building, close to where Joe Slay, after he was shot, there's a memorial stone to the four victims with the inscription, their deeds are their memorials. Oh, that's so sad, but thank you. Yeah. It's sad and it's also frustrating. And we could go on for a lot longer. Well, I think we could because a lot of things haven't changed as far as preventing this kind of thing from happening, as we know, because it just happened again. So Right, and I'm gonna, and this is not to say anything would have kept him from snapping. No. But one thing is, when you you treat somebody like that with kindness or give them a break, they believe it justifies their behavior, not that, oh, gee, I dodged that one and got a break. 
And I don't think people understand that. It's like I said. But on the other hand, if you if you don't, then you become you can become a target. Right. It's, so uh, I don't know if there's... Right. I'm most disgusted by, as disgusted as I am by him, I'm most disgusted by people... I won't get into specifics, but there was a book. But it calls him a folk hero in right. the title. Which yes. he's a fucking murderer. Right. And I know people put their own spin on why he did the way he did, but every single thing you read online is very simplistic. They pulled him over because he had rust stuff. It doesn't, spots on and his car. the thing is, it doesn't fucking matter because he killed people in cold blood. Right. He hunted them down and killed them. Right. So nothing they might have done to him. Right. People in America who are harassed by police because of their color <laughs> or their circumstances or other things who basically either just take it or try to fight back through the legal system. And I'm sure that the same people who lionize Carl Draga are the ones who, for instance, think Black Lives Matter is an anti-cop All movement. Lives matter. Right. It's appalling to me that anybody thinks he's justified, even if they did pull him over because his car didn't pass inspection, A, they have the right to, B, he had a fucking AR-15 and multiple magazines enough to to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot until he finally got shot to kill four people and wound four more. I don't understand some of these people that are going to, no matter what someone did, like someone there else, is, like Timothy McVeigh, people that defend him. Yeah. And there are, yeah, as, we, we, as we well know, even at this podcast has yes. been. Yes. There's nothing that justifies that kind of killing. No, there isn't. You know, isn't. and look at Dennis Jokes. Look at what he was like as a human being. And he tried to... And Draga didn't only shoot him to get him off of him. He fucking executed him. Yeah. He was still alive. He may have lived. Well, he executed... Scott Phillips. Scott Phillips. He yes. executed... I mean... Well, he executed he was, all of them. Yes. He did it and he knowingly... He, right. he, he went he, back and made sure they were fucking yes. dead. And frankly, there's no excuse... And if you read the book, there's more little issues he had with people. I well, went through a lot of that to try to give people the flavor of what he was like. He's one of those people that is not going to ever inspect, get his car inspected. He's not going to pay his taxes. He's not going to do unless someone forces him to because he doesn't think he needs right. Why? He, I don't. But in any case. Anyways, well, thank you. Now it's time for our recommendations. <laughs> Okay, so we have recommendations. Yeah. Do you want to go first? I think so. Okay. Since they've listened to your voice for long I know, enough. they need a break. They need to um, listen to both. Well, I want to give a, just a, a mention of of a true crime show that I've been watching, even though it's really bad as far as the negative Nellies. I'm not going to go through the, the whole list because it probably would get points taken off on most of the list. Yeah. But I keep watching it. It's The Hunt with John Walsh, even though I disagree with a lot of things he says, I still like him for some reason, and I don't know why. So yeah. I don't know what That's to tell you. He's pleasure. so like passionate about everything. Mm-hmm. But the one I'm doing was on Netflix. It's not a true crime. It is a fictional crime series called The Sinner, and I think it's based on the book. And each season's different. Yes, it has different it's people. A, it, but I also feel like Bill Pullman's going to be in he, next he season. He is. He's the one. 
Yeah, the second season came out. I hope he plays a different character. He's the same character. Ugh. I haven't watched it, okay. but I read about it. Well, I'm going to go. Oh, well, then you should be an expert. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go through the, our, um, the negative Nelly's yes, watching. the rating, rating system. system. So bad reenactment, that doesn't really right. count. I think last time when I did A Wrinkle in Time, I was going by acting. I think reenactment should just be reenactments, and if you're doing fiction, then that's okay, a point so they, that they okay, get. Okay, so they get a point. All right. So narrative cliches, yes. Mm. I'm taking a point off. First of all, he's a cop, and guess what is going on in his life? Does he have problems? Yes. Is he divorced? Close, separated, mm. working on his around? marriage. Yep, yep. Is he, he's troubled and haunted. Y- yes. He's, mm. yes. And he's got issues, and his wife, soon to be ex wife. She's bitchy. She's not bitchy, but she doesn't understand yeah. him. And also, he's got some SM thing going on. I don't really know and want to know uh, what the hell that uh, the deal is with uh, that. The only good thing. Keep uh, it in the bedroom. Well, that'll go. Uh, there are some good okay. things about that, but that'll be later. Oh. Also, he has a feeling about this crime that nobody, including his boss, believes him, and he's the one that knows, which annoys me. Well, what? that kind of happens in my book. Just... So what? You know, everything is not about you and your fucking book. And besides that, I can't help it if your fucking book has narrative cliches. Maybe we'll do a negative Nellie's on that. Okay. Okay, so it gets a point off for that. Racial gender obtuseness, not really. His boss is a black guy. It takes place in the Hudson Valley. So I guess you'd call it upstate New York. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, people do. <laughs> I mean, it, it is mostly white people, I guess. I'm trying to think. I know his boss is a black guy. I didn't, nothing stood out to me, put it that way. Maybe I'm just, you know, okay. my white privileges. Lack of good visuals, no. It was pretty well shot. It seemed to be taking place where it was supposed to be taking place. I'm not sure where they filmed it, but I think they did film some of it in upstate New York. It looked like. Or Canada. <laughs> probably, yeah. Uh, missing pieces, yes. Yes, the plot had some holes in it and I don't want to give any spoilers but there was one major thing I had an issue with but I honestly didn't care enough about it to go back and rewatch to see what I missed but if you watch this you might have the same issue as me and if you can you can email me but there were a couple things that were glaring problems with the plot that kind of annoyed me inaccuracy anachronisms no because it took it took place in the present day there were flashbacks to 10 years before and stuff but it wasn't enough for it to really be a problem so so far it's an eight the storytelling i'm gonna say is okay i had issues with it sometimes it it was hard to tell where things were going i don't know it's hard to explain but i'm taking a half point off because there was just stuff that didn't make sense and it never did make sense which mm. i don't like freshness i guess yeah there were interesting parts the story is it a story you've heard before no no so i'll say yes it was fairly fresh at the beginning of the story there's this youngish married couple yeah they're young they're in their 20s with a little boy they go to the beach state park type of thing one day they're sitting there um she's cutting up um an apple for her little boy she starts to get distracted by this couple that's a little ways away from them and she runs at the guy and stabs him Mm. to death for no reason Mm. so that's the story 
Oh. That's the beginning of the story. And there are some hints that she's got some issues. Right. As we know from reading The Gift of Fear, nothing like that ever happens for no reason. Mm, yeah, she's got issues. Mm-hmm. And so that it's not finding out, obviously, who did it, because we know she killed the guy. So freshness, yes, I'll say freshness. Repetition, no. Beating the drum, no. For the repetition of beating the drum, it did repeat flashbacks over and over, but it was kind of like... Through the character's eyes, she was trying to remember things. So I'm giving it a seven and a half. And I know the second season, which is out, is a little boy who may or may not have killed his parents. So let me give my overall assessment of it. I don't know if I'm going to watch the second season because I like the actor Bill Pullman very much, usually. His character is creepy, acting, and weird. He has a beard, the mustache, the thing I hate, and this is a personal thing with me. So <laughs> I don't like it when guys' mustaches like are so long, the hair is like going into their mouth, oh, yeah, yeah. and they like suck disgusts, on the hair. Yeah, that disgusts me. Um, he's, Maybe that's supposed to be part of his troubled nature. I don't know, but he's also like, I think he's supposed to be someone that has a hard time communicating with people because he's maybe extremely shy or has social anxiety, but it comes across as really creepy, and he looks like he's always smirking or smiling all the time which maybe he isn't but it's hard to tell because of his fucking beard <laughs> and just there were so many things about his character that, that like it would annoy irritated me, me and it. made me want to punch him mm-hmm. and I was also irritated because I usually like him but the acting is very good in this show Jessica Beale plays Cora the young wife her acting is very good in this I was impressed by her she did not overact or like some people would she was very restrained but she was very good and the guy that plays her husband who I haven't seen in anything before Christopher Abbott he's also very good the storyline was so so it was kind of eh. I mean I had to keep watching it to see how it finished but I don't know if I'm gonna watch season two okay my review, this shows how out of it we are. I can't remember if we've already reviewed this or not. I don't remember doing the negative Nellies on it. So I'm going to review Evil Genius. We did that. No, I'm I just know. kidding. If we've already done it. I don't think we did. So it's the documentary on Netflix about the, and you've heard because all the podcasts have talked about it, the pizza delivery man who robbed the bank and was blown up in the parking lot. Poor guy. It's a four-part documentary. Bad reenactments. No, they had reenactments, but what I liked is they were graphic ones, and they were done really well, and they weren't showing, like, what happened, like, oh, here I'm watching... But they showed how something could have happened and where the people were, like, when the guy had the bomb put on him. And it's funny because little silhouettes were made to look like the people, like Bill Rossing. So I really liked the reenactments. They are good, and you don't hear me say that very much. Narrative cliche, very little. The narrator talked a lot, but he didn't draw cliche conclusions about anybody involved. He seemed kind of dense sometimes, but that's not a cliche. No, it's not. Racial and gender stereotypes? Not really. The story was the story. Lack of good visuals? No, I really like the visuals. A lot is made of the fact that people were surprised that they show Brian Wells <sighs> blowing up. The um, documentarians were on Real Crime Profiles, talked about that, and they what they showed could have been worse, which I knew. But also, they didn't talk about this, but I feel like the angle they showed in the first episode wasn't as graphic as what they showed in the last yeah. episode. Because now you've watched it all and you're used to it. I have no problem with it being shown because I felt like they're talking about this. You need to see it. You, you Nobody's forcing you to watch it. He didn't blow up into little bitty pieces. No, it was I mean, still startling. It was startling. But they used the visuals they had access to well, I thought. Mm-hmm. I thought yes, they did I thought job. so too. Missing pieces. 
I did feel that there were some things that weren't explained well and some things that there were little holes here and there. It, it depended on what they focused on, but I had questions that I felt weren't answered. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm taking off half a point for that. Inaccuracies and anachronisms, I don't feel like there were any. I thought the storytelling was good. Mm. It followed a specific narrative arc. But again, just like I felt there were things missing, I was hoping that they would kind of get to stuff I had questions about that they never did. It wasn't a huge issue, but another half a point comes off for that. Freshness, yes, this happened, you know, more than a decade ago. But this guy's told the story. I didn't know a lot about. I did not. I, I remembered remember it. Being, I remembered it, but I didn't right. know. Oh, and a back lot. to the storytelling issues. One of the things I did have a question about that was never adequately answered is the videos of the woman, what's her name, talking to her lawyer that were filmed, and they never really explain why it was okay to show... Because she's dead, I think. Even then... I don't know, but they could have said that. They could have explained that. Yeah, they could have explained that. Because she was talking to her lawyer, and I'm glad they showed it. The repetition, I felt there was a little bit of repetition that wasn't necessary. I felt like it showed a lack of maybe confidence in viewers paying attention. I don't blame them because, you know, people are looking at their phones and all sorts of stuff. Usually when I'm watching something that captures my interest, I'm watching it and not doing anything else. So I'm taking off half a point for that. Beating the drum. These people were crazy and nuts and did bad things and they didn't over... No. I felt that he showed us these people and them let us draw let our, us our own conclusions. So points taken off are one and a half. So it gets an eight and a half. And I really, I did think it was really good. I understand a lot of the focus was on Marjorie. He had the video of her. He, hmm. he talked to her for 10 years, blah, blah, blah. I felt like Bill Rothstein wrote the letters. He and, made the bomb. And made the bomb and thought he was smarter than yes, everyone else. And yes, that's said. But I felt like, and I know he died and it was hard to do more about him. I wanted more about him. After watching that, my theory was that he did that. She was kind of the impetus, but he's the, I'm smarter he, than everybody else. He's like, else. ooh, oh great, she wants to get this money, so this is my, I'm going to take, chance. yeah, I'm going to take over, I'm going to do this, because he seems like the type of, well, I can do this, and I'm going to make this, and it was so fucking Anybody who tells crazy. the FBI, anybody who tells the FBI guys the first thing, I'm smart, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I know. I kind of like that FBI guy, though. Yeah, he looked like a, a he character. He a big head. His he looked head like a cartoon square. character, like yeah. a. Family guy, but I liked him. Yeah, I did too. He was funny. Well, what I liked about the cops is it reminded me of newspaper people in a way. They talk about this horrible stuff and they're kind of laughing about some of it. Well, you can't help but I I mean, the poor guy. I feel like he was a hapless victim in one of the biggest tragedies besides him dying is that he was treated like a guilty person. I know, and the guy was. And at the scene, he was treated like a guilty person. The way he was killed, it was sadistic. And that's why I think Bill Rothstein did it It because he could. It was a horrible thing. First of all, this poor guy wasn't—he wasn't the brightest bulb, but he was a nice person. Yeah. Putting that thing on his neck that he couldn't get off—he wouldn't have had time to go through all this shit. And why would you do that to somebody? Because you're a sick fuck. It's sick. I mean, because you're playing a game. And Bill Rothstein, maybe at the 
time he knew he had cancer and was dying, I mean, it's hard to say. One thing I liked about it, even though I know this is your review, is that the documentarian guy talked to the um, the women that were in prison with Marjorie and the sex worker, and they were treated just like with respect and everything. Right. They were treated just like the cops. They were pretty good interviews, too. I, I, I thought, thought they, they were, too, they were and good. I thought they had the best information. Yes, they did. Yeah. But, so in any case... I highly recommend it. I don't think he exploited Marjorie. I think she... Yeah, some people feel like he did. She let herself into it. And also, it's not like I just made contact with her and then after she died, I did this documentary. She knew what he was doing. Except it reminds me of season two of um, Don't Disappear. I know. know. (laughs) It's funny, which we'll talk about another time. But in any case, so that's it for this episode yes hopefully we'll be back in a timely and a manner i think our sister liz coming is gonna, up is our coming sister up. liz it, our most popular ever <laughs> episode is going to do another but guest because episode. her voice is better than ours yes and also she's a college professor so she probably does a better she's job smart. of explaining things and so we'll be back in two weeks okay yeah. okay right. um yeah and crime and stuff podcast.com you can find our website crime and stuff online oh online oh yeah that's the name what's of our cr- website crime what's, and stuff online what's our twitter is crime and stuff podcast no yeah i think so yeah you can find us how many you crime can and stuff find us well our website is crime and without an ampersand stuff online.com yes from there you can find everything else you can find all our episodes Which, and more yeah so anyway well thank time. you all yeah thanks for listening I bought that at Fortin's Furniture when I first moved in here because it was the cheapest chair there. And now I want to get rid of it because it smells like my tenant's dog pee and cigarette smoke. Mm -hmm. And it disgusts me, but I have no way to get it. I didn't recognize it. That's all. The only reason I asked. Oh, my God. I know.